natural ability that's you can't coach. It's it's hard to coach. For me, he's one of the most talented players in the country. The Red 78 with Alan Quinlan and Neil Briggs. Subscribe to the Rugby Channel on the OTB Sports app and turn on your notifications now. OTB AM with Gillette. Get into your flow with the new Gillette Labs Razor with exfoliating bar. All right, bang on half past seven this morning. You're very welcome along to OTBAM. It's Jaron Owen with you in studio all the way through until 10. Also with us this morning is Nathan Murphy. Nathan, good morning to you. How are you? Good morning, everybody. Uh, so I want to start a little bit with where we were yesterday in the show. Uh, we had Vinnie Perth in studio talking about the League of Ireland game. And he was kind of surprised at the reaction that there had been to the Rovers game uh, because of the goal in the past from Jack Byrne. He was kind of making the point that the rest of the game was grand. And, you know, off air afterwards, we were kind of having the conversation that actually that's fine. In the era of social media, two or three highlights in a game is kind of all you need for everybody to go, oh, I want to go to this thing. Yeah, I think for the league and getting people interested and involved and excited about it, a Jack Byrne pulling off a goal like that in the past like that does get people thinking, should I go to Tala on a Friday night? It doesn't maybe reflect the quality of the game, but actually I thought the game was a pretty entertaining game. Drogheda are a good side. They get the ball down, they pass it around, and Rovers sort of did what Rovers do, which is they grounded out, they had a lot of possession, and Jack Byrne was good, but I think Jack as he admitted himself in the interview, has a has a long way to go. He gave the ball away quite a bit, but he's always trying to do something. He's almost trying to do too much. He's trying to force the issue constantly. He's always looking for that killer pass, perhaps at times when it's not really on. But it does feel as though you can get very quickly now all the exciting things that happen, whether it is a sprinkler going off it's a talking point. It's something that happened. I don't see it as this massive embarrassment to the league. I don't either. Crazy to be things honest. happen everywhere. Yeah. But, uh, I, but I think it, I think if you're involved in the league, you're pretty sensitive about that kind of stuff because it, it is like obviously not great. But like it happens in like all when, over the world. When they were parading the Club World Cup at Chelsea last week, I mean the lads got sprinkled. Uh, Chilwell and uh, was it Reese James who brought the, the, the Club World Cup onto the pitch? Uh, it ha- that is one thing that happens everywhere. The wheelbarrow just made it funnier. Like, that was it. Yeah. Like. I don't think people were laughing at the league. It turned it into high art. Yeah. Well, there was that hashtag greatest league in the world, which every time something would go wrong was thrown up and it would be thrown up a lot over the course of the season. But yeah, but is that not actually endearing? It's like we, we're a self-reflexive bunch of fans who really like this thing that everybody shits on, but uh, shouldn't because actually it's kind of enjoyable and grassrootsy. I think it's a frustration that a lot of people don't take the league seriously because of incidents like that uh, rightly or wrongly so I think that's where the frustration and the protectionism is around clips like that going up and going viral because yeah well League of Ireland fans and people who watch a lot of football would go ha fine those who aren't that interested who might you know the sort of floating voter are looking going jeez this is amateur hour whereas a lot of people have their minds made up about the League of Ireland. I think already, I think so. I I think a lot of people had their minds made up about the League of Ireland. I think things have changed over the last number of years. I think that you trace it back to Michael O'Neill and that Rovers run, and from then to here, there's been a journey that a lot of Irish football fans have gone on and gone. Well, actually, you know what? I mean, look at this. Uh, okay, yeah, okay, I'm okay. All right, now I'm watching. Like that's how that's how it happens, and it's going to be a drip, 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 and then overnight success. Hopefully. What does an overnight success 
look like though because um, a lot of the teams unfortunately and clubs aren't in a position to take advantage of overnight success so well uh, I'm, I, obviously there's no such thing as an overnight success like that's the point Luton Town uh, were out of the league and now they're on the verge of going back to the Premier League it took 14 years for them that's an overnight success but everybody is, is saying because they're in the cup tonight it's like oh that came out of nowhere but it didn't it came out of hard decisions made 14, 15 years ago by ownership and community planning and reaching out and having a vision and sticking with the vision through thick and thin that's like uh, overnight success is, is obviously what 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 the general perception will be is like that came out of nowhere but actually the building blocks are here now sorry just to cut across you there that's fine um, yeah I think there's good things been done I'd say everybody's wary of false stones that you know when Dundalk and Cork had a proper rivalry going it felt like the league was on the cusp of something and then Cork just disappeared and find themselves down in the first division. Obviously, Dundalk has been a complete shit show for the last couple of years as well. Maybe they can get things back together, but both of those juggernauts have fallen away. And it did feel, if you think the last game out in Tala was the Jordan Flores goal, Jack Byrne winner game, packed house. It felt at that stage, just pre-COVID, that it was on the verge of something. And maybe now it can get back there quickly. When you look at the season ticket sales for all of the Dublin clubs are pretty much at record levels and I think there is a real connection between what happens with the Irish senior team now and an understanding that while you may not see football quite of the quality that you will see in the Premier League you don't need to that actually you can go to any of these matches and you'll see an entertaining game by and large the football is decent you know you'll see a bad game but you'll see you know you'll see a crap game in the Premier League Watch Liverpool and Manchester United over the years. It's never usually the most exciting game of the season. So at times, people's expectations can be too high. They're looking for falls constantly. I think Shamrock Rovers draw had a game on Monday night was one of the more entertaining games I've been at recently. Plenty of chances, good football, good pace to it, bit of quality in Jack Byrne and, and Graham Burke. And you know, people are getting a ticket there, I'd say, for what, 15, 17 quid. Mm. I don't think you can complain too much about that. I, like I, I'd agree with you, and I think that uh, the if you want to compare it to say what you're getting in the Premier League, for example, I, I know that there is a title race on, and maybe Liverpool will be Premier League champions. But if we kind of cling to this notion that existed a month ago of Manchester City being the standard bearers right now in the Premier League, I mean, there is definitely a theme out there that they aren't overly exciting to watch because they are so good that that it's all, we've almost got to this point where it's like this perfectionism actually isn't as uh, entertaining as it once was whereas if you put them up against teams of a of a similar standard which invariably tends to be Liverpool and you've got opportunities and you've got chances and you're not quite sure which way the game is going to go and that is the, the key point of it uh, a football game that has chances and, and that you don't know which way it's going to go that draws people in, right? It doesn't necessarily need to be a 30 million euro winger uh, who is creating the opportunities as long as there are opportunities. Jeopardy. Uncertainty of outcome. Exactly, that's it. That's that, That's what you want and every league in the world can produce that and it's just about, I guess, access and the experience that you have when you're a match scorer or as a match viewer at home that kind of takes that to the next level. And a title race. Like, that's what it needs this season and that's why that goal for Derry feels important for the league on Friday night because... If Rovers had won that, they would have been five points clear of Derry. Derry dropped points again on Monday. And that's sort of what Shamrock Rovers did last season, particularly in around April. They scored an insane amount of late goals, grind out results, and next thing you find yourself 10 points clear. And you have two-thirds of the season left to go. Yeah. And everybody knows the title race is done. So what? why are you dragging yourself out on a Friday night or a Monday night to go to a match? Whereas I think now, if if that the other teams can stay in touch and obviously, you know, Derry do drop points. Pats haven't beaten Shelburne on the opening night. Suddenly you fall back again. That 
there is an opportunity for Rovers to just keep winning their games and everyone else beats everybody else. But And look, that probably will happen. Rovers are further down the line than most other teams and you would maybe the injection of money into Derry is going to allow them to catch up sooner rather than later. And that's why the other narratives in the league are very important. That's why Duffer and his little sprinkling of stardust is hugely important and hit their battle against relegation. Hopefully they don't just become a mid-table team six weeks in and that's it. There's no jeopardy as well. But him fighting against relegation is going to be one of the, the great Irish sports stories of 2022. I, I do I do want to just um, broaden this out a little bit because obviously if, if you just woke up and you don't know what happened last night, Antonio Conte uh, pulled his trick 10 days ago after they got beaten by Burnley who are also beaten last night in the league by Leicester. What the hell? But anyway... Uh, and then last night they went out to Middlesbrough in the cup. It's like, uh, what? This isn't supposed to happen. They turned. They turned a the corner. Yeah, I saw. I saw a tweet on a tweet, a quote tweet on online this morning. A tweet. Hey, <laughs> might have invented that. Yeah, good um, man. And it was uh, it was in, rela- re- in reaction to Tottenham last night, and it was I'm done with this team, and I was like, oh my god, it's Conte, and it was actually just a, a phoner into Talksport. But I could fully have believed that if Conte was like, I'm done with this team, I would have fully believed it. But actually, uh, I think it's football that London have done a full transcript of his quotes, and I went through them with a, a tooth comb, and uh, there was no sense of Antonio Conte being like, I'm done with this team, or maybe I'm not a good manager this week. So maybe he just welcomes the idea of fighting on one front at this point, although he played a pretty strong team. I played pretty much a full strength team yeah. out there last night. Harry Kane is playing, Young Min Son is playing. They had chances. Matt Doherty missed a, a really good opportunity, went around the keeper at one stage and should have just pulled it across to Young Min Son and said, smashes it over the bar. Doherty played all right, actually. But like this level of inconsistency, some of it, some of it has to land at the manager's door. It's too easy, and all the analysis is it's Spursy. Like this is what Spurs it is Spursy are. though. It's, it's mad. It's mad. It's Richard like... Pochettino turned them into something else. Antonio Conte. We all felt when he went in there, they were getting somehow one of that real top tier of managers in world football. And instead of fixing this, he's just looking around constantly, going Spursy lads. This is very Spursy. Well, uh, Your job only... is to change that. It is, but he's only had eight weeks. Like it's hard in a very short period of time to come in and fix things. Like most of the long term great successes have been built on a couple of seasons of ridding the club of whatever cancers were in it. If you think back to Ferguson, like no manager's ever going to get the same amount of time that Ferguson had, right? And I'm not suggesting that Antonio Conte should because his Spurs team are actually better than the Man United team that um, that Ferguson inherited. But it took him absolutely ages, like ages and ages and ages and ages. And it's going to take Conte quite a long time if Spurs believe that they're capable of being a tier one footballing entity, right? Like, so I don't know... The, the constant referendum that he has introduced after that early period on his future, that that's weird. Because he, he knew what the situation was. He knew what the playing stock was like. He'd already spoken to the club six months ago. I, it doesn't just doesn't make any sense that like managers now seem to exist in an accelerated culture where they want to make decisions quickly, go in, see, make the decision, move on and and try and emerge unscathed. Well, the best case scenario was he would come in, they would sign four or five players. But again, if they were going to sign Dusan Vlahovic, a deal like that surely is already underway before or the day he arrives, if that's a key signing for him. That's got to start happening quickly. It can't have been a shock to him that at the end of the transfer window, the only two players they ended up signing were the two guys coming in from Juventus and that they had let four players go who he never really seemed bothered about any of them. Like that cannot have come as this massive shock and a betrayal 
with Daniel Levy. That is how Daniel Levy has always worked. So for him to go in and somehow think that Tottenham is going to magically change is a bit of a lack of due diligence. Which Or else we're misreading all the stuff that he's saying and he actually, it, it's not, it's it's just it's just his mode of speaking and that he will be there for the long haul and the notion that he's got to walk out for whatever reason is nonsense. That this is all just uh, that's part of the carnival. I I don't know if I paid enough attention at Chelsea, but maybe because things went well, this didn't happen. Maybe this it was a very bad start, and then it got good very quickly because he changed formation. But that, that happened within like oh, six seven weeks. games, yeah, yeah, of of the season. So uh, like. That, but it like, brings a level of uncertainty. So I think he's misplaying his hand there because, as as you were saying, after every single match, the first thing you're waiting for last night is what's Antonio Conte going to do? Like, is he actually going to resign? Is he going to resign because he was humiliated last night by Middlesbrough? Yeah, he's got nowhere left to go. That, that drags on. Like that line of, you know, there's one club in crisis all the time. You just don't want to be that club. Like he is ensuring that Tottenham are that club. Week well, on week on well, week. Well, luckily Manchester United have the the, the current franchise on that. Um, uh, their obviously press conference wasn't. But it, it was a um, <clears throat> was it a fan forum? Was that where they were all talking? Yeah. Where where uh, the ex- explanation of of what Darren Fletcher's role was after Ralph Ragnick was like, I don't know what he does. He didn't he didn't <laughs> quite say he doesn't know what he does, but he's like, yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not really sure. And then Fletcher was like, oh, when the transition happened between the two coaching staffs, I, I kind of came in and started being on the training ground. It's like, when you listen and you just take everybody's comments in, it doesn't seem to make that much sense. So it, Fletcher said, my job is to get the pathway for young players to come through and make it to the first team. It's working very well at the moment. Look at Alanga. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay, fair enough. Now, Alanga's obviously been at Manchester United since he was 12, right? Mm. So, how long is Fletcher in the role? Uh, 18 months? Because he was, he was talking about doing, <clears throat> talking about doing podcasts uh, two years ago, right? So, like, at uh, the start of COVID. Um, so, it's not that long. He can't really claim that much credit for Alanga, can he? I, I mean, I, like it's hard to know who's who's actually brought him through, and I think that there's also a sense that, like some somebody somebody said stop on Alanga going out on loan, obviously. Yeah, and well, uh, Rania claimed credit for it. I was just about to say then that press conference last week after he spoke, uh, after after he scored last week that uh, that it was him that uh, spotted this guy who was about to be let go and and told him to stop. So uh, I think everybody, whenever anything goes right at Manchester United, likes to claim credit for it, and like Richard Arnold. Yesterday, I think if you're if you're coming to this thing new and you don't know Manchester United's form over the last couple of years, you'd be pretty excited about where Manchester United are going to go because Richard Arnold's a bit like Ed Woodward can talk a good game and can uh, I guess beef up hopes quite nicely over over the next little while. Like he he's saying that he is implementing a strategy to win, and he says everyone associated with Manchester United should have belief in the opportunities that lie ahead for us, both on the pitch and in the way we engage and serve our fans. And he says we have a clear vision. And we are implementing a strategy to win with an empowered leadership team to drive that forward. So it'd be interesting to see if that clear vision manifests itself. Did the debt figure get reported widely? It did. An extra 50 million up to 500 million. Doesn't seem to be an issue, although the stadium is crumbling. They've obviously had to cut ties with Aeroflot. The team is not performing. Things could get into a tailspin pretty quickly for Manchester United if they... If if things went bad, if there was, you know, say, a global shock coming, 
Um, so I, I think uh, it's not all certain. And, and their wage bill went up 19 million. Yeah, like so just from, from some of the writing done on it yesterday, it, like their second quarter results for fiscal 2022 showed the club paid £10 million in exceptional items, which include a compensation to Solskjaer uh, and uh, also other members of the coaching staff. And then that figure also took into account a revaluation of the Football League pension scheme deficit. And then the results showed an operating profit of £5.4 million for the quarter with revenue up to £185 million, up 7.3%. But then it gets to your figure there. The net debt has increased by 8.6%. Player wages were up 196 Oh, 19.6%, not 19 million. I was no, thinking to that, 97.7 million pounds. Um, so that's a, that's a constant uh, ticking along. Cristiano Ronaldo-shaped increase yeah. there. Yeah, I mean, they, they did give that new contract to uh, Henderson as well. It's like you, you get, get good value for spending 5 million on your sub-goalkeeper per annum. Um, Liverpool's is 300 grand. You know, not, not that it's fair to compare and contrast. Yeah, but I, I think if you... Uh, if you are running your business properly, you can sell Dean Henderson, who is much sought after in the summer for 25, 30 million. Last summer. contract is worthwhile. Last summer. Well, last, last summer, summer, summer or this summer. Coming. Will, he, will, he, will he still get that amount? Because it's, you know, it's a, it's a very much a what have you done for me lately league. Are you going to spend 20 million on this? Uh, maybe you are, because it works for, it's, it seems to have worked for Villa and, um, and I'd like to have seen him play a year. You know, if he'd gone on loan this year and had a, a, a year similar to the year he had at Sheffield United. Anyway, sorry, all of this is, is kind of by the by. The other big story overnight, and I'll get to that in just a moment, but a reminder, OTBM is brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. At 7.47, here's what's coming up between now and 10 o'clock. Special treat for us all this morning, Tommy Walsh at 10 past 8. Virtual Insanity with John Duggan at 8.45. It's a double weekend tournament. Uh, sports pages at 9 Philly and football at uh, 10 past 9 and Eric Donovan in very reflective mood after his defeat at the weekend potentially his last fight so we'll see uh, you can listen in on that from half 9 uh, this morning now um, the other big story overnight is that the London Times are reporting that Abramovich might be ready to sell Chelsea that he has in the past uh, refused to sell turned down offers uh, around the 2 billion mark and they're saying that now all bets are off um, there's a, a Labour MP who was part of the select committee on Russia who says that Abramovich is selling off his property assets in London. Um, he's got a load of property assets. There's like uh, the New York Post also did this thing yesterday where the Upper East Side, the Russian oligarchs own a large portion of the Upper East Side. Uh, you know, three or four buildings in a row. I think um, Abramovich had like numbers 73, 74 and 75 on, on the same street. Um, and, you know, it's not like... It's not like a two-story, two-up, two-down type thing. It's like a, you know, it's big. So there's, there's a lot of money tied up in that and um, probably pretty easy to sell if you need cash in a hurry. Uh, so, they, you know, Tom, Thomas Tuchel obviously snapped yesterday in the press conference and um, it felt like he'd been asked the same question repeatedly, but was it only twice? I think so. I think I think it was it was only it was early in the press conference anyway. It was it was maybe his second second time being asked about it in the press conference. Yeah, uh, I, I, I understand Tuchel. The, the the written quotes are actually they're um, they're more reflective than the video, and it's hard to shake the video where it's like, why what are you doing asking me this question? I'm a football manager. Um, Whereas the reflective quotes were like, everybody has this in the back of their head since since the war started. Everybody 
is distracted by it. Of course we are. I'm going about my job like I presume you are going about your job slightly distracted by this too. Mm. Uh, but he was asked about Abramovich and Abramovich is is the most important person at Chelsea. Like he was on the pitch with the World Club Championship in Abu Dhabi just a couple of weeks ago with the trophy. He has put all the money in that has transformed Chelsea from Spurs to the one of the top four biggest clubs in, and most successful clubs in, in English football. And you know, his rationale and his reason behind that is fairly evident. Like, it, it's fairly obvious why it's important if you're an oligarch to have some kind of uh, financial instrument like Chelsea uh, to, you know, uh, be able to put money into and then also to use it as something to kind of... Um, uh, to exist in the world. And well, He's got the biggest boat in the world, so... yeah. Yeah, you know, having the European champions, the World Club Cup winners, even among the oligarchs, it's a bit of a prize. It seems to matter, um, but I think it, it, it also it also gave him a kind of power and, and kudos in polite English society for a while, up until they refused his, his visa, and, and then obviously he seems to have um, uh, recalibrated his desires. And then there was the stuff last week. It's like, oh, he's not involved in politics. And then there was the other stuff. It's like, oh, no, he's actually, he's trying to broker peace. Like, And then it's, oh, I'm going to hand it over to my charity. And the charity are like, hang on a second. What? I'm not sure about this. So now that the story comes out that he's interested in selling and it makes perfect sense. But you do have to think that if, if English football and if football generally isn't looking at what's going on with Abramovich and thinking this isn't good, does the contagion stop at Abramovich? Is he the only owner that anybody has a problem with? Because it's it's clearly not. Like, allowing football to become the playthings of billionaires was uh, great for the fans in a fantasy football kind of way in that it was like, oh, I get the best players in my team and uh, you know, the quality of the football that I see improves. But in the long run, it completely devalues the experience of being a fan of that club because you're now, you're now a plaything for billionaires and you're now really almost a victim of your... Supporterhood um, was it Johnny Lou pointing out that as soon as you start liking a team, the team looks at you and places a numerical money value on you to try and exploit. Is that the point of football? Maybe it is. Maybe maybe that is that. Maybe the only reason we do anything is so that we can be exploited for our money. Maybe that's exactly why uh, the world exists. I don't know. Maybe that was at the whole. All of humanity was all coming to this point where you're worth X euros to whoever is watching you're, and you're watching the TV and you're like sitting there on your couch going and there's like a little money figure of your head magically going up and down depending on which button you press like I mean if the question is what should football stand for the, like, I mean, it obviously shouldn't be that but the reality is this is where we are and I mean this has come up at various times over the last couple of years when we kind of wonder to ourselves how far will football actually push the boat out and I think all we've seen over the last week is that a line in the sand has been drawn and we now know that uh, your owner being associated with uh, the invasion of a democratic country in Europe, which is an important point here, in Europe, is the line in the sand. Everything before that line in the sand, that includes bombing Yemen, is absolutely fine in the world of football because that is exactly what's happened here. And that even goes among some of the, the good owners in the Premier League who voted pretty closely unanimously to allow Saudi Arabia into the league, to allow that money to come into the league. And I think the answer to your question is, is football all about the value that 
uh, you place on each consumer? I think the answer to that question is blatantly yes. It absolutely is. That is what football is all about. That is what Premier League football is all about. There is no argument that you can make to convince anybody otherwise. Uh, okay, and and fair enough. Then that's grand. But like, what what an enjoyable thing it is mm. to be a, a part of this. Um, so. Uh, Manchester City obviously is effectively owned by the UAE, right? Um, they own Mumbai yeah, City, Melbourne City, New York City, Manchester City. Effectively owned by the it's the Abu Dhabi United Group for Development and Investment. So it's it's as it's as clear that that's a state owning that club as it is that Saudi Arabia own Newcastle. Um, Abu Dhabi abstained in the vote mm. uh, at the UN, like. What what's the difference between them and Abramovich, and what's the difference? What, what what is the difference really? Like when it comes down to it, and you tease it all out, there's no real difference. These are all being bought for political reasons, um, and I don't think it, I, actually uh, you you can kind of go as far as saying well, what, like ultimately, if it's just if I guess. I think there's an opportunity here, right? We we keep getting told you can't do you can't print money, and then the pandemic comes along and money gets printed. Oh, you can't give people a, a a universal wage. It would be wrong. It would be moral hazard. But then the pandemic comes along and everybody got a universal wage because nobody could go to work. And the world didn't fall apart. There's a bit of debt, but they're going to just write it off over a period of time because that's what happens. You can you can do whatever you want if you want to. And now they're talking about seizing the assets of the oligarchs. We're just going to take that stuff that you have because you're connected in some way to Putin. So if you can do that, why can't you just seize the football clubs and insist that all football clubs have a fan ownership scheme like they do in Germany where 51% of the club is owned by the fans. Like, just do it. Just decide. This, here's our opportunity to take football back from the hands of the, of the billionaires and the countries because actually we realise now with Abramovich it's completely wrong. The scales have fallen from our eyes. It took the invasion of Ukraine by Vladimir Putin for the scales to fall from the eyes of football and football fans and I think if football fans in, in England were to get together the way they did to kill the European Super League they have a window of opportunity mm. here to say okay actually you know what we could fix this we could fix this right now if we all got together and I think we're not that far away from this we're really not that far away from this where all the papers every single one of the papers is like gotta get rid of Abramovich from Chelsea but there's other questions that need to be asked of Newcastle and that need to be asked of Manchester City and then do we stop there because Everton obviously have money from Usmanov and I mean ultimately if 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 a British billionaire buys Chelsea from Abramovich what's what's the difference if it's just a plaything for rich people this is a chance to take football back I don't think they're going to take it but if I was a football fan in England, I'd be like, is this our window of opportunity? Like, they they had a game cancelled between Manchester United and Liverpool. They managed to cancel a game. The biggest game in world football was cancelled because the fans decided, we've had enough of this bullshit. Mm. But then they stopped. Then they stopped because the signings happened and everybody's like, oh, we got Ronaldo. Maybe that's more important. Well, I mean, yeah. And, like, it, what's going to be really interesting is that... Um, you talk about fans kind of coming together on this front. I, I think that there is a, a long way to go before that happens because what we're seeing right now is a lot of sort of billionaire tribalism almost where my billionaire is better than your billionaire. And it comes quite a lot if you look at the reaction to, say, Thomas Tuchel's press conference yesterday being like, oh, my 
Tommy Boy has done such a great job why aren't you asking the same questions of, of uh, the UAE or why aren't you asking the same questions of Saudi Arabia and it's like just because maybe it's not getting the same level of coverage doesn't mean that the same questions can't be asked but it does seem that there is a constant sense of pointing at another club rather than accepting what may or may not be going wrong at your own club I think that is the first step before you actually get to that point That's all uh, politics Like I think like, I think is, is, it, is it fair to be like disappointed with Tuchel yesterday like I, I, he, he was pretty pissed off in a way that I don't, I'm not sure he had any right to be pissed off yesterday to be, to be quite honest like he was saying that I'm in a privileged position. I've never experienced war. That is fair. But you are also in a privileged position, a privileged enough position to work for Qatar and then subsequently work for Roman Abramovich. Your two bosses are Qatar and Roman Abramovich. I think uh, if you're a pretty rich, pretty successful young manager, you have an opportunity. You have the privilege, as you said yourself, to say no to both of those things. If you really care that deeply to give out and to get pretty exercise in a press conference, then I would say that you probably care deeply enough to, to read up on Qatar and on Roman Abramovich to, to not take their money. So I'm not sure about, about that whole reaction from Thomas Tuchel. I definitely don't think that he's under any sort of... Uh, I don't think there's any justice towards Chelsea Football Club this week whatsoever maybe some of the top brass at Chelsea could uh, ship a, a few more blows considering Tuchel is going to be the face of the club at every press conference but other than that I don't think there's any sense of injustice but Chelsea fans think that and that's the key point here if you're talking about some sort of collective fan movement uh, the, the fans have never been more divisive as they are now Tuchel has got to think about that though he is the face of Chelsea and when people talk Chelsea now, they talk Roman Abramovich. And this war has escalated so quickly and has united people so quickly against it. Like, Thomas Tuchel, I don't think, was asked yesterday about his own position. But if you're having to sit in a press conference three, four times a week and make excuses or not defend, but somehow not comment on Roman Abramovich and his ownership and his links with Vladimir Putin, on a personal level, that's not a situation that Thomas Tuchel will want to be in. So do you get to a scenario quite quickly, if the club isn't sold, where Thomas Tuchel needs to consider his position as manager? Does he want to be the face of this day after day, week after week? Maybe it's something he's considered already, but watching him at the press conference yesterday, that was the thought I came away with as to he probably would defend himself and say he's backed into a bit of a corner there so what what can he say and maybe a press officer should come out alongside him and say here is the club's stated position but it is a personal thing now for an awful lot of people and do you want to be in 5, 10, 20 years time looking back at a press conference of you saying there's nothing I could do about this I'm not sure how sustainable that is for Thomas Tuchel I also wonder has a line been drawn in the sand in terms of ownership like Roman Abramovich is trying to get a fire sale, as you say, to sort of get his assets out of Britain as quickly as possible. But the way football has always worked is once this scenario is dealt with, it disappears. Move on. Exactly. Like, like with Usmanov. So suddenly the focus is turning to him and, well, actually, maybe his connections with Putin are even closer than that, Roman Abramovich. So he should be the focus. We need to get rid of him first and then we'll think about Roman Abramovich. And how, I know you say about the Super League and fans uniting and all of that, but I don't know practically how you go about a scenario of handing it back. The only way that would work, I guess, is if you were to strip the club of Chelsea and suddenly the government owns this and can hand it over to a supporters' trust and you say, have to, that is you have yours, to say go that, and do it. You have to say that, that what we've decided, we're taking this opportunity, football is a community asset and no individual can own more than 49% of the club. It, it's a new rule, we're rushing it through Parliament, it's getting slapped in immediately and away we go. Like uh, there's there's a, there's a bunch of different mechanisms you could you could 
uh, used to do it. The, the politicians could find a way if they decided that now was the moment they were going to do it. And like, frankly, I, I'd be amazed if it wasn't the type of thing that would garner massive political support right now. Now, you'll obviously end up uh, facing legal battles from uh, the Glazers and the uh, billionaire owners of uh, Villa and Leeds and all of, the, all of those other uh, clubs. But tough. You want to own 49% of the club? That's great. If you don't, divest yourself of the asset. Because the, the, the leeching off of poor Owen here and the little money symbol over his head, we've got to stop that. It, like, I mean, it, it, there's also then a very kind of like a, a smaller issue and all of that where the Premier League would just not want that themselves. Like, I mean, you talk about the money symbol over their head and they're like, wow, well, all, the, all these people from all over the world are willing to pay massive why, money for our television rights. That's why they don't, get, Ronaldo. they don't get a vote. Though, though, like, it's the, it's the people have decided that we don't want Abramovich, but we'll take this billionaire. This billionaire is OK. This billionaire is not OK. Do you know how he made his money? Do you really? Do you want to find out or do you not want to find out? And what about the situation in Yemen? And what about the situation in Abu Dhabi? And what, what about then the other um, practical aspect of all of this? You're, you're putting your trust in a British government that I would say is pretty nationalistic. And it's, I would say that there are plenty of people in Every Westminster who get... Every great plan has a fundamental flaw and you found ours really quickly. <laughs> I would say that they get like a great kick out of the fact, you know, when they, uh, when, when they see, you know, they, they, they ring their French buddies and they're like, our league is better than yours or their Spanish buddies and they say the same thing because uh, we've got the biggest, beefiest, uh, most well-resourced league in the world and that's why our country is great. It's what the English people who have power might say. It's probably true, to be honest. It's, look, it's not going to happen. I understand it's not going to happen, but now is the window of opportunity to start. Like, also, people telling you you can't do this because it turns out that's a lie. You can do whatever you want if it's for the, the greater good of most people. And it turns out in moments of crisis... You can do absolutely anything you want. So, this is a moment of crisis, I would say. OTBAM is brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. Uh, we've got loads more to come. Very briefly, Nathan, before we let you go, Mayo up to second. You're trying to keep this on the down low. We've been at second for a while, actually. Sustaining in second. Mm-hmm. Maintaining. Improving. The, uh, the, the, the Mayo players, I'm sure, are just honoured to be on the pitch is the great David Clifford. And to be near a team ranked one uh, is, you know, to be second to that great Kerry team and all they've won, it's uh, it's a real honour. Yeah, I think uh, there's a there's a <laughs> there's a quiet confidence if it could ever be such a thing in Mayo at the moment. Uh, when you look at the bench that they've had, the character that's still there, like they do this all the time. That's it's now or never, though, right? When they were relegated. It is now or never. It's it it is. But it was I mean, now or never in 2016. It was now or never yeah, in 2017. And it felt like they, never. It did feel like never. And it, it did feel like at the end of those... They came was, back. They come back. They come back. They may or at that very but, elite level where the players that are being are turning out much like Kerry in that if you want to get into that Mayo squad, you have to be of a certain level. And that hasn't really dipped. So, But the age profile of this now team... Or never. Like, so Killian's coming back this year and will he be able to maintain the level he's at for many more years? I don't know. Uh, will Aidan O'Shea be happy with a, a bit part role for many years I don't know also the dubs are at their weakest that they've, they've been Kerry aren't quite at the level they're going to get to with the two Vundekins who are coming into uh, uh, being a man at this stage and they're going to be men for the best part of the next decade I, I think that they're close to their peak to be honest I, but on, you're, you're, you're making excuses for Kerry already yeah no no I'm saying, I'm saying I'm putting a level of pressure on Mayo that having I'm saying this is the year this is the year Kerry you're going to get better and better well, is, so, 
is Dublin going to come back? Is, like, I mean, just on that Killeen O'Connor point, is, is there a world in which that he's just a, a bit power player like Aidan O'Shea this year? That James Warren's like, I like my starting team. What we could do with it is a little bit more far apart. And I'm not, sorry, bit power player is completely underselling it. I'm talking about coming off the bench with 50 minutes on the clock. Closer. Playing half an hour. A bomb squad. Like well, he may have no choice. Like, if Killeen O'Connor isn't back as of yet and you know, the championship is going to be over in four months' time and he hasn't played in a year... Yeah, how long is it going to take him to get back up to full inter-county fitness? So are you easing him back in over the provincial championship where Mayo are playing Galway? Like, can they afford to ease him back in? I, 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 like, he's not going to be first name on that team sheet in the next couple of months because they are going to have to manage his moments. So the hope, I'm sure, is that come end of June, July, that that is when Killian O'Connor is back to Killian O'Connor at his absolute best. But like, he has suddenly an awful lot of depth there's probably still it's clearly not a transition the transition is over but there's still a lot of names there that people are getting used to and what their talents are and exactly what they do because like Lee Keegan I think was the only one who started against Armagh who had played in the 2017 All-Ireland Finals so like this is not a this is a young Mayo squad you're talking about the Kerry squad getting better a lot of these Mayo players are going to get better and better over the next couple of years and maybe this generation can be just as strong as the generation that went before and can I just ask one question like if Mayo were All Ireland champions. How much would that change? Like just by this, by I know I know it's a big deal, but by into the fact that there would be a trophy sitting in the cabinet, I reckon Mayo will be favourites for this year's All Ireland, and they're as big as what six to one. Uh, on, in the, it's like they almost look like they're building. If they were All Ireland champions, we'd be talking about these new fellas coming in, being like, oh, as Dublin and Kilkenny showed in the past, you just need one or two new players to come into the squad every year to maintain that level. And that's what Mayo have shown at the start of this year. So I just think that there is still this kind of intangible thing about not having won in All Ireland, which people are using to knock back Mayo's chances this year. Whereas if you look at the tangibles, they're in an extremely good position. And that's understandable because they haven't won the All Ireland. But I think if you're looking at a season as a whole, you have to look at the strength Mayo have and think they're going to be there in and around the semi-finals again. And from there, well, things always seem to happen uh, for good or for bad for Mayo. It, whether they have that little bit of X factor that can get them over the line, whether they can score the penalty when they need to score the penalty. like These things we won't know, but it was no freak that Mayo got to an All-Ireland over the last couple of years, it turns out. I think at times it felt in 2020 that there was a, oh, I wasn't expecting this, sort of bonus territory. Last year, they back it up. Maybe yeah. they should have gone back it up again. But it's not it's it's also not straightforward. Like Connacht is suddenly stacked. Like, you know, having to play Galway or Roscommon to get through Connacht, otherwise you're going down a long route of qualifiers. Well they like the qualifiers though. Before. It'll suit this young team to be a bit off Broadway if they if they don't make it th- through the front door and they'll be underdogs. They were never off Broadway. Broadway follows Mayo, Jer. It's a movable feast. <laughs> Remember when they went to remember when they went to Newbridge? Sure yeah, you, you managed to you managed to make a you shit know? show of that, didn't you? It was the it was the the first time Broadway had come to Newbridge in a long, long time, Jerry. Oh, look at you. Look at you. How did the, how, what, happened, uh, what happened that day, Nathan? Did you win that game? Well, oh. Hopefully Kildare follow up this great victory over the Dublin team as they followed up that great victory over the Mayo team. You got a special prize for that too. Nathan, good stuff. Thanks a million. Always, always a Cheers, pleasure lads. to spend some time in your company of a Wednesday morning. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you eight minutes past eight this morning. OTBAM brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. We have plenty more to come, including the great Tommy Walsh next. OTB AM Number 6 I have Kilkenny um, Again going about business quietly like they're they're in third place on the table they win this weekend like away at Dublin and they're right in the mix again for a league semi-final so enough said about them lads okay moving on <laughs> I have number 7 uh, Tipperary again Tip Limerick Clare Antrim the reason I have Limerick above Clare is because I expect them to go 
to Innes this weekend to take care of business, which would then put them on even points. But obviously, the head to head is better. So I think it's there's, will this, this will obviously move as the weeks go on. You know, as we get closer to the championship and things begin to heat up and full teams start going out as opposed to, you know, half teams, this could change. But again, I reiterate, uh, Wexford number one and full value for it. I already anticipate a tweet at some point from at Shannon Cider fan 1994 or something like that coming to us during the week saying, I can't believe Scale at Limerick outside the top seven. And uh, where did you put them again, Paul? Did you have been fourth? I threw him into fourth, yeah. It's, it's quite reasonable. I, I'm not as dramatic now as, as James. Dramatic? <laughs> you sound like my wife now. <laughs> I'm, very, I'm very gradual with these things. I like to ease through them. And so, uh, yeah, I'm in fourth. Right, that is this week's edition of The Hurling Pod. Paul Murphy and James Scahill are talking with Will O'Callaghan. You can listen to the podcast every Monday on the OTB Podcast Network. Subscribe to the OTB GAA feed. You can search for it there. Tommy Walsh, good morning to you. How are you? Good morning, Jared. Good morning, Owen. It's, uh, it's exciting in that um, Limerick are giving us all at least the, the pretense that we're going to have a proper championship this year where there's doubt about the outcome. And as a result, everybody thinks they have a chance of winning it. Yeah, and um, I suppose it, even if you go back to the Galway game, when Galway beat them, um, you know, the lads sent off, uh, the conditions were terrible, so you could still make the excuse, listen, they're missing down a couple of players, they were down a man for a good 20, 25 minutes, and they still, you know, they, they were there right till the end. But I think the, the, the match against Cork at last weekend, that was a huge, uh, I suppose, it's going to give a huge boost to every other county, because, you know, Cork were so far away from the last year's All-Ireland final, like every team nearly over the last year or two. And suddenly they beat Limerick. No matter what team Limerick had out, and then a lot of big names out, they beat them by nine points. So I think whatever it does to Limerick, it'll give a boost to the rest of the country, Ger. Uh, I, I, we hadn't planned to talk about this, but it just struck me there that um, there's a lot of stuff in the papers today about the hand pass rule and people wanting it to be... Um clamped down on in the championship as much as it's being clamped down on the league and if you think back to the Dubs certainly always thought that the rule changes around the kick out were all aimed at making Cluxton less important is there a sense in Limerick that the hand pass rule and clamping down on it is targeting them specifically will they be able to turn that into something some kind of a chip on their shoulders maybe as the season goes on um probably many other things Jared, but I don't think the hand pass rule because I think every player is nearly doing it at the moment um, why has it changed so much over the last couple of years? You go back 10, 15 years, when they get the ball, drive it as far as they can. Now it's all about finding the man in the best position, uh, the lad uh, coming off the shoulder. These are all the phrases you hear now in the dressing rooms. Don't give away the ball cheaply. And um, towards like you go back to 10, 15 years ago, if you gave a hand pass to a guy around the back line or an extra maybe short stick pass, the crowd would be on your back straight away. Now it's the thing to do. If you hit the ball long and it goes to the spare man, then the crowd are on your back. So the game has changed. So we're seeing far, you know, I'd say if, if you're to do uh, stats on the amount of hand passes in the game today versus pick out a game 10, 15 years ago, I'd say it's dramatic, the difference. So it's always going to lead to guys trying to do it faster, trying to do it quicker. The tackling is ferocious at the moment. So you don't have time nearly to throw it up, you know, and give yourself a second to give a proper hand pass. So listen, it's a skill in the game. I'd be fully with, you know, the people behind the people that want it, implement it because, we can't get to the stage where it's throwing the ball. Uh, then, you know, it's a different game then. The hand pass is a skill in itself. You have, to, you have to see space between the hand and the ball. Now, it's going to be difficult for referees to spot it. The game goes so fast. So I just think, like in the rugby, you have to see, you know, you have to see a foul before you can give it. A referee can't just guess. I think he's thrown it there. 
if he sees it, he calls it. And if he, and I think it's up to the guys like ourselves on the podcast, the Sunday game, these not to be, I suppose, criticising the referees on these hand passes if they're calling it when they see it, as opposed to spotting every single one because they won't be able. And there's no sense that this uh, is aimed at Limerick. Then you're probably asking, yeah. It's like a minute. You're probably asking if it's going to be a chip on their shoulder. Like, when you're the champions, they're going to get the criticism and they're receiving the criticism at the moment for playing on the edge, um, niggly stuff. Um, and they have to accept it because if you play the game the way they play it um, and you're the champions, they're there for the last, you know, three or four years after winning three All-Irelands and people are going to want you. The media are going to want to get a dig at you. Your opposition are going to want to get a dig at you, even the neutrals. They want to see new champions. That's just the way sport works. Seeing with Manchester United when they were going well in the Premier League, you've seen our own team. That's just life, you know. And um, I think John Kiley's an astute manager. He'll be able to turn it, as you said, to kind of a chip on their shoulder. Let's prove him wrong. And um, I think that's, you know, Tommy Rooney said it to me there last week. Are the hunters now becoming the hunted? It's 100% right. He's on the money with that. They are now the hunted by every county, by every player in the country. Because you want the champions. You want to be the best team. Because they play, they're such a fiery kind of a team. That even brings out the passion even more in the opposition. So, yeah, I think um, they would bring a lot of things uh, into that dressing room to give motivation for this year. It did seem Limerick were pretty okay with handling the hunted tag last year. Has that shifted somewhat? Does that... Does that lesson does that mentality that's that that's I guess or it's almost a siege mentality I guess when everybody's after you does that lessen over the years well, well Owen I'd say there's a bit, huge difference in the last two years versus this year with the crowds we see you know the impact of a crowd you go to Salt Hill um, you go down to Nolan Park you go to Crow Park with a full house and it's a 50-50 crowd the opposition are going and they're going to be louder when they're the underdogs and maybe they start getting a run on you so I think the big difference they'll see now is the last couple of years, when, say, you know, a little brackets happened in a the game, there wasn't too much impact from a crowd because there wasn't many people there. This time of year, there was, no, there was no real, there was no one at the game. So I think it's going to be huge, the, the, the crowd impact. Like you take when Corks are getting on top of you. Cork have always, going back traditionally through all the years on, they've brought outnumbered or probably opposition supporters nearly two to one. A huge sporting county, huge followers. They'll, they'll follow their sporting teams to the ends of the earth. If they start getting a run on you, you will hear, you know, it's, it's like being in, you know, Galatasaray over in Istanbul. That's the kind of, you know, that's the kind of atmosphere you will have. And I think that will definitely feed into it on. And they won't have come across that the last year or two, Limerick. Like, I mean, there was a, a commenter in uh, the other day who tongue-in-cheek was suggesting that the water breaks have been uh, the end of the... I don't uh, think the, it was tongue-in-cheek at all. Well, like I was just about to say, like is, you talk about the crowds there and maybe you, you factor in the water breaks. Like all of these little inches probably add up to, to something in the comparisons between now and 2020 and 2021. Yeah, the water breaks, <clears throat> I think for supporters, it's, it's, it's great. You know, you like to see a free-flowing game. We've often seen how game changes on the water break on. For players, it was kind of nice. Um, you know, you come out for a game, give it socks for 15, 17 minutes. Then you can recharge and focus again. So it's, it's going to be a big difference, I'd say, for players, getting used to playing for the full 35, 38 minutes. And um, I think Limerick, what they have done over the last couple of games, they've started to introduce a few new players. Well, a lot of their top players are still playing. It seems to me, looking at their team sheets or the first three games, they kind of play two in every line, introduce a new lad or maybe likes of a David Reedy who wouldn't have got much game over the last couple of years. So, so John Kiley, I think, is trying to introduce a panel again, give lives games. Young Cotton O'Neill, centre forward, he's got a fantastic goal. 
Like he knows he can play him now in the championship. So I think for John Kiley this year, he, during the league, he's trying to find new players that he can implement because he will need them uh, come championship. Uh, the point about the crowds too <clears throat> is like last year's Munster final when the game looks gone from them when there's the it's 216 to 12 points at half time Tipperary absolutely killed them and there's the incident before half time where there could have been a red card and there wasn't maybe if there's a massive tip crowd baying for blood the referee has a slightly different decision to make and and history changes so I, I think that's another it's even just an agent of chaos that we don't fully understand what the outcome is going to be uh, in those two so again all the more reason for us to look forward to this year's championship because I definitely think at the end of last year when the All-Ireland final was over it was like what a great performance it's brilliant to see a team reach a peak like that but Jesus is anybody ever going to catch them yeah and um, I think there's the beauty of the two sides of it there Ger. Like, I remember watching the darts uh, you know Phil the Power Taylor dominating the, the dart scene and um, you'd be praying for a new champion you know as you would the underdog to come on and win but then when he was gone, there was something missing. Like I think we crave these geniuses, these great players, these great teams. It just gives you something to look forward to of a Sunday or, or a Saturday night. And that's what the joy of looking at this Limerick team is. They're not just a powerful team. Individually, they have just absolutely wonderful players like Keen Lynch, Aaron Galan. Like there's, there's people, fans all over the country will go and see these guys just to see their individual performances. Kyle Hayes. You know, absolutely, after taking the game to, to new levels as a wing-back, he, he plays as a forward and as a back. I've seen him against Limerick before the Grohan Hegarty incident. He shoved three or four lads out over the sideline. <laughs> it was, you know, it was wonderful to watch. So it, Limerick individually um, have just majestic players that we all enjoy watching. And now the opposite is you said, here. Last year we said, is there anyone to touch him? Suddenly Cork are coming. Wexford are coming with a good team. Dublin are starting to be competitive. Um, I think the interesting thing with Cork we have to look at is going back through the history of champions they're always nearly always um, I suppose the foundation of them is good under 21 good minor teams uh, you go back to the great Cork team during the, the 2000s the Sean Oaks and the Don Oaks the Tom Kennys um, the Rock they won it up two hundred twenty one our learns 97 and 98 you look at the Paddy Marr era the Jamie Callan era with Tipperary they won under 21 minor all Ireland's um, you know, say Henry Shefflin, would, his team would never have won minors. But when he came to under-21, wins an under-21 All-Ireland. You look at the Dublin footballers who were winning, you know, uh, under-21 football Ireland. Even the, the Wexford team at the moment, the Lee Chin, you know, um, Lee Moore McGovern. All these guys won three under-21 Lincers in a row, Jer. So this Cork team are not just coming out of nowhere. They're coming, they're after being in four under-21 All-Ireland finals. They're in one or two minor All-Irelands as well. So listen, there's a foundation behind this team. They seem to be starting to gather momentum now as well, playing a lovely style of hurling. They seem to have learnt tactically from last year's All Ireland final. Looking at them last Sunday, they brought back Young Mellorick, who was a tigerish defender, and kind of half Mark Keane Lynch. They left the, the centre back Mark Coleman, you know, kind of free at times. So yeah, listen, it's it's exciting to look at the opposition. It's going to be very interesting when you when you talk about that and, and Limerick to see how it manifests itself in the summer. I think right now everybody accepts that it's uh, just the league. But I just wanted to ask you on the football front, Tommy, because you've obviously got great experience of being in a team who won a series of All-Irelands in a row, just like the Dubs did when they did their six in a row. And all of a sudden things look like they've come crashing down a little bit. What, what's that experience like after you lose your first All-Ireland after winning four in a row? in your case, does it dent the confidence in the years after? Is it hard to get that sort of hunger back into the team? Yeah, we, we were a little bit different in that we still had the same team, um, Owen. 
So mm. when we got beaten in 2010 for the five in a row, it was just to recharge the batteries, come back with hunger, um, look at Tip's style of play that they had beaten us in 2010 with a kind of a movement that we probably wouldn't have seen in the years previous. Um, up to that, it was kind of everyone takes on their man and, and best player wins. 2010, Eamon O'Shea, and it's interesting to see his influence on probably Darry Egan, who is now in charge of Wexford, uh, and the change in their style of play. But uh, Eamon O'Shea was over Tipperary that time as a coach. And the, the movement that, that Lara Carvet, Owen Kelly, you know, the Bonner Mar started introducing in them big games was something we hadn't seen before. So we had to learn from that as well. So we were probably coming from a different place. We were coming with the same team. We just had to recharge the batteries, get the hunger. And, you know, I think 2010, Tipperary were bet by traditionally the Penny's biggest rivals. You know, our fathers, grandfathers, it was Tipperary was their, you know, biggest opposition. It was the, the great, you know, Hell's Kitchen and the John Dials, the Jimmy Dials, you know, the, the team of the 60s, the great Tipperary team uh, of that era. So they grew up watching them, being beaten by them. So our chance then was to, you know, I suppose, turn the tables. So when the Bees in 2010, it was a big, after winning all the Modern, it was a big dent to our pride, you know. So we just came back all guns blazing. A different scenario, I think, to this current, you know, they lost the Philly and McMahons, um, Bernard Brogan, you know, all these top, top players, you know, Keno Sullivan, like the Forrest they've lost even, you know, you know, Dermot. And so I think it's just a different style. I think Cluxton as well, um, on like, he probably will go down. Like, you know, it, you know, the greatest players, Jack O'Shea in football, like the Gooch, you know, by Munns, all these guys. But Cluxton has to be, you know, you know, nearly up to, you know, with them. He has to be in the top three or four there. And like he, he never gave a spare kick out. Like, he was able to bring forwards into the play by, by their movement. He was able to pinpoint them that, you know, it's probably very difficult for any goalie to, to pick up that slack. And, and, you know, so I think that's probably a major difference in, in this Dublin team and our team. Eamon O'Shea talked about the unbearable lightness of being. I remember uh, sitting in his, his presence. I, th- I think it might have been Lark Corbett's. Uh, we did a show down there and he was like, oh, that was, you know, and his inspiration is a magic realist Czech writer from the 50s. You're like, well, this, is, this is different. Different gravy that you were up against in that All-Ireland that time. And O'Shea's influence can't really be understated. But you brought up Dara Egan there. That's really interesting because like the difference in style seems to be quite pronounced from what Wexford were doing and, and I think we've written Wexford off really at the end of the day of the year like this is going to be a team who's spent it's going to be very difficult for them to get back on track but here they are straight away raring to go like they're a team completely re-energised yeah they are and like that's amazing what a little bit of freshness can do you know and a little bit of a change like you often say a change is good as a rest year um, like you know I think like Darry Egan being a, like the Wexford board deserve huge credit over the last maybe 10 years, Jer. They started off by bringing in Liam Dunn. Like Wexford, if you go back to the results before Liam Dunn came in, you know, they were really starting to slip down into the second, the third tier. Liam Dunn came in as, as you know, massive success he had with Owlark, both as a player and as a manager. Um, just a fiercely determined guy. Standards were going to be set really, really high. And he set them for five years. That had a few great wins. But what he set was a foundation in Wexford Hurland and then they came along asked Davey Fitz to get involved and like what Davey done like I've been down in Wexford I work down there sometimes like every young lad is going down with a hurl they've you know there'll be a huge number now of, of GDOs the, the game development officers uh, down there um, they're all just after being employed over the last you know five ten years so 
Davy Fitz has brought a huge, huge energy, a huge enthusiasm, and it's back to being like that. If you remember Wexford, football was going very strong. It was nearly 50-50 at this stage. The footballers were nearly overpowering the hurlers. Now it's gone totally the opposite again. And I think Davy Fitz and just what he brought, the energy, the enthusiasm, the just joy of the game. And we're seeing that now because they're not just slipping away. They're bringing in new players, Jer. And now they're after implementing uh, Darry Egan as their, as their new manager. And as I said, he's bringing probably the knowledge of the Liam Sheedy and, and Eamon O'Shea, that kind of, you know, difference in, in, in tactics and that. So it's going to be interesting to see Wexford this year. Was that the Leash um, versus Wexford game in Rat Downey? It was the first Welsh Cup game. And the big difference I, I noticed was they were trying to get Conor McDonald and whoever else was inside could be Rory or someone inside with him, one-on-one. And suddenly these guys in the full forward line, they're going from battling against two or three spare defenders to just 1v1. And if you see Rory, uh, Rory O'Connor's goal against Antrim, um, up there in Antrim, the ball came in, uh, sorry, it was against Clare down Nennis. Ball came in, one-on-one into the corner, rounded his man, goal. And that's the difference. So if you're against two or three spare defenders, um, suddenly then, you know, it's a point. You have to point is your best chance. So I think Dara has changed around things and um, brought probably a freshness to, to those set up. So, so where are we at then in terms of one-on-one defending? Is there a movement away from the sweeper? Have you seen those chances? And I guess is the reaction to that going to be a reversion to that to, to try and stop Wex from getting into those one-on-one positions? Yeah, I think on what Limerick have been probably the best team in the country over the last couple of years, is holding on to the ball before you give in the, the ball to the full forward line. So, they, Gerald Hegarty or Tom Arcey, they look up. If the boys are free inside, making the run, they will give it in. But if they're being held or if there's a spare guy back, they will just play around with it around the half forward line and put it over the bar. So, I think most people have been playing catch-up in that game. Regards, they get the ball, they look up, and they're, they're just going to give it in. And I often see that uh, the, the, the teams emerging now they were for the last couple of years they bring it out lovely as far as midfield but then they just give in a 50-50 ball uh, as opposed to Limerick they bring it out as far as midfield and they either give in a, a 60-40 ball in favour of Aaron Gillan or Seamus Flanagan or they hold it up play it back across the field back ways and then over the bar so the team, most other teams have been playing the other way they bring it up lovely the same as Limerick as far as midfield or half-back line, then they give in a 50-50 ball, if you like. High, low, it doesn't really matter. And I think that's where we're starting to see a change there. We saw it with Cork last weekend. I've seen a few games with Wexford, let's say, at the start of the year. So now when they give it in, it's nearly a 60-40 ball. I had one last question I wanted to ask you before we go, and it's about the dubs. The dubs, on the other hand, didn't make a change. Maddie Kenny's been there now a good while. It's definitely his team, the implementation of his style of play, the relationship that he has with the players is, is kind of deep-seated at this point, and they are definitely responding to that as well. And they look like a, a group who are kind of coming to some kind of peak and some kind of fruition as well. I know, again, it's early stages, and they've obviously targeted the early stages of the league to be ready ahead of everybody else, but they're going to bounce into the championship with a lot of confidence. They will, and confidence is huge. It's, it's, it's another part of the whole set-up, Ger. You play with confidence, you get an extra couple of points, you play with a bit more gusto, you play with a bit more fire. Um, you know, Instead of half hitting the ball going for a score, you drive it over with confidence. And that's what they seem to be playing with. Um, I think Matty Kenny, you see, winning dictates everything, Ger. Um, you win, wasn't a great decision to stick with a guy. Um, towards a, if you bring in a new guy uh, during the off-season and you win, wasn't a great to freshen it up. And I think it's all dictated by whether you win or not that following year. Now it's a great 
decision for Matty Kenny to stay on. In fairness to Matty, he spent two or three years there during COVID. Never really got to, you know, the first couple of years, you know, the training was haphazard or on and off. Now he's after getting a good spell with these guys. Like he has proven with, with Galway teams and, and Railway Cup teams in the past, he can do it. He has proved it with Tula in the past. He can win. He has the stuff to do it. And then you back it up like... You know, Dublin are doing phenomenal work up there. They won the Leinster Colleges there recently enough. Uh, again, so um, what what is this team different? Like, if you go back to last year's Leinster final, they beat Galway in the semi-final, and then they're missing four players with COVID. So again, you know, interrupted that season. This year, they seem to have their full, you know, crew of players. Eamon Dillon is making great impact off the bench. Ronan Hayes is after turning into a terrific player. Danny Sutcliffe is back to his best winning high balls. So probably out around midfield. So I think what they are is that they're now with their best players back again. And, um, you know, hopefully to get an injury-free run, you know, for the for the coming few weeks. If if you were Matty Kenny and you've had really great experiences of uh, getting the best out of Conor Callaghan, are you ringing him and saying, look, that football team, they're not going anywhere. You can see, it's not, there's no <laughs> glory in trying to chase another All-Ireland football. But if you were to win an All-Ireland hurling, that would turn you into one of the greatest GAA players of all time. Unquestionably, would you not just be tempting him? Would you not be ringing him up and saying, "No pressure here, come"? But you know, greatness is right there for you. Sure, I think the first decision he needs to make is get you into his backroom team, because <laughs> <laughs> I'd be WhatsApping him, I'd be Snapchatting him, I'd be putting it on Instagram, <laughs> be doing everything I can to bring in Conor Callan. Um, I think you know the Henry Shefflin move to Galway has to be a lesson probably to every club, every county in the country. Why don't you ask? Like, who would have thought Henry Shefflin would have went? Like, I drove up there last September, October to Galway. Like, it's a terrible road. Like, two and a half hours of just hardship driving. There's no, you know, you're not on a motorway. You're, you're, it's tough, tough driving. They went down and they asked him. They had the conference. They had the, you know, the way it would all say, listen, why won't we let him say no? And now he's up there in Galway, and again, kind of like a David Fitz impact in, in Wexford. He's not just, it's not just an impact on Galway, it's an impact on the whole county, really. There's, a, there's an energy about the place. And going back to your point about Conor Callum, ask him. Ask him a few times. If he says no the first time, make him say no the second time. And, you know, and maybe it's not straightforward to come in and, and you have to train every, every day of the week. You know, work around it. Make, you know, you have to make exceptions for players like him. So... I would. I'd be, I, I'd be asking him every day to week all day long, Jared, so it'd be a great addition. It's been a while since we've seen Conor Callaghan in the national sense of things of, of you know, going on, on an All-Ireland run with his, with his club, uh, with the hurley in, in, in his hand. And obviously there's been no inter-county hurling for him. So over the last few years, Tommy, is, is, is there a bit of brushing up to do or, or does he just slot into, I know this is a completely fictitious scenario we're discussing here, but if so, it did actually become fact, does he seamlessly slot into like being one of the best hurlers in the country? Because I, I think you had him down as one, one of the best, maybe the best hurler in the country when, when Kula were... All-Ireland champions a few years ago. Yeah, and I think he, at that time, he definitely deserved it because mm-hmm. he can do it on the biggest stage of the club scene. Um, he can do it anywhere, as far as I can see. Um, what does he have to do? Like, it, anyone, I suppose, that watches Conor Callaghan playing hurling, like Mick Finley even, say, that time for Kenny, like, it wasn't born out of a first touch. It was mostly running onto the ball, using his speed, using his strength, um, using his ability to go past, past players. That's Conor Callaghan's strength. If not ball comes into him, say, 90 mile an hour, he controls it, goes around the guy. 
his guy was nearly always running onto a ball. Like he had huge power, huge speed, and that's how he got his goals. And that that's what made him, you know, such a, a phenomenal player that he could turn games. Like like the great players with the burst of speed, the Ronaldo's, the Messi, they get the ball, they're gone, goal before he even look up. So I think. No, I, I, I think just getting back in, getting pucking off a wall, and I think it'll all start coming together. Listen, the great players can pick it up quick enough, but give them back two weeks and they just have it again. So, um, no, I'd, I'd be bringing them in and just, you know, um, I'd say he'd, he'd have it back fairly quickly. I'm sure the Dublin Hurling supporters are rolling their eyes at us even having this conversation, but it is interesting to, to consider that um, there aren't that many other counties who would have access to really top quality players who we've seen win Club All-Irelands and, and be the best player uh, who are just unavailable to them it's it's very rare in other counties that anybody would pick not to play with an All-Ireland contender and um, sprinkling them in would actually make a significant difference there, is, there probably does come a point in the future where if if the hurling team can continue at its current progression where some, some players will pick hurling over football yeah it's and that's it you were growing up in Dublin for the last 15 years, there was no choice, really. The, you know, the footballers were just so good. It was, they were like a Premier League team, really. They were famous everywhere. They played a beautiful brand of football. They did things the right way. There's great management teams, you know, going back to even to the pillar. You know, really good personalities. Jim Gavin, now Desi. Like, it's just definitely, they had the X factor. So the only change, I suppose, that can happen is if Dublin start winning. So hurling now. So if they start winning, suddenly you have a choice to make. Um, you know, like they had a great win under Anthony Daly back in the Leinster final that time. If you know they got to the semi final and could have, you know, could have got to the All Ireland final that year against I think it was Cork. And who knows, like if they could get back there again under Matty Kenny, get a bit of luck this time and get over the line. And um, then absolutely Dublin will become a powerhouse because listen, there are millions of people up there. The clubs are huge and um, they're huge. You know, we often go up there playing challenge games and that. There's, there's a huge love of the game up there and as soon as they start winning maybe you know Leinster finals because they're doing it at every other grade under 21 minors uh, schools so this is the missing piece in the jigsaw and like what, like you go to the All-Ireland Champions this year Limerick if they were missing one player say if they were missing Keane Lynch would they have won the All-Ireland last year if they were missing Kyle Hayes Aaron Gallan you know would they have won the All-Ireland last year so look flip that with Dublin if they have one extra player that chose hurling instead of football Possibly they can be All Ireland champions. Definitely competing, Jerry. You know. Yeah, and and look, there's no bias here. I I don't really care if he plays one way or the other. It's just be really great experiment to see what happens. Because um, I know all the Dublin football fans are already angrily texting in saying he's been, in, he's been on the match day program uh, for for the Dublin footballers this year. It's not going to happen, but you never know. Yeah, but I think the interesting point you make there, Jerry, is that possibly enough for Cameron Callahan now. That that probably ship has sailed. It's the next Conor Callahan, the next lad coming out of minor. This is the guys they need to focus on Dublin. Do everything they can to sell them the the, the, the game of Ireland, sell them the love of the game of Ireland and the future that, that they're going. I think that's what they, they, they really need to do. Like, How often have you seen a manager in other sport coming in on a losing season and suddenly turn things around with his passion, with his, you know, his influence, his, his ability to get people to row in behind him? So I think Dublin... That's where probably they need to put in the effort is the next guy that has to make the choice, let him choose hurling, put, put, put all your eggs in that basket, you know, and do everything they can to, to get him on board. I just have one last question, Tommy, just on um, Henry Shefflin in Galway. It, it was actually just after the, the Limerick win when uh, Finton Burke 
came out, he got mad at the match, I think. So he was speaking and he was saying that there's no stats, there's nothing. We're just focused on enjoying our hurling. Uh, are you surprised by that? Are you surprised that that's kind of the, the, the way uh, Shefflin's gone, that it, that it is all about kind of free-flowing, I guess, instinctive hurling rather than being bogged down and, 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 and getting straight-jacketed, I guess, by statistics and by a, a rigid game plan? Uh, like... Like, I know Henry Sheffield and Richie O'Neill, these, you know, these guys are guys that are um, massively prepared, mm. put huge hours of work into preparing teams. Like, Fintan Burke mightn't be seeing statistics in that, but I'm sure Richie O'Neill and, and, and Henry Sheffield and his, and his team are. They're probably just probably portraying and probably giving the messages in a different way, I would imagine, because I know Henry Sheffield since he was 18 years of age. It's probably a, there's no one that will prepare better, a team or himself. So statistics, yes, Fintan Burke might be seeing the statistics, but I'd be shocked if Henry and Ricky O'Neill and and their team aren't looking at them day in day out. They're 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 not they're not living back in the old days. Uh, on they're looking at video analysis. They're looking at stats. I would be guessing. I put my house on it to be honest. You know. So I'd say it's the messages they're they're portraying to the boys is probably keeping it simple. But um, I'd say just in a different way. That, that's what you want to see, isn't it? That like, it, uh, for no seconds, I'm suggesting that he hasn't done his preparation or anything like that. But I guess there is a, a sense that some players can get too bogged down and get given too much unnecessary information. Yeah, I think probably different ways of giving a message. Like you come up to a team and you say, um, even say Owen, um, there was forty hooks and blocks last weekend. You didn't do any of them. What's going on? And uh, that's one way of giving it. Uh, you could also say to the team, listen, lads, we had 100 hooks and box last year when we won a game. We only now at 40. What's going on? Towards a simpler way would just go over to the line and goes, you're not working hard enough. I haven't seen you hooking and blocking. What's going on? You know, there's different ways of conveying a message. And it depends on your style. Um, I'd say it's, it depends on the manager, really, on what way he's going to give it. So there's, there's more than one way of doing it. And I would imagine Henry's way will probably be pulling the lad to the side and asking them the questions like that without regards to throwing stats at them. Were you guys wearing GPS? Had it come in by the time you'd finished up? Um, I think they started to come in but you're kind of trying to avoid them. Because <laughs> <laughs> just... like, you know, this, like the GPS, uh, you know, like <clears throat> the only kind of my explanation on GPS is like surely you can see it with your eyes how a player is doing you know and like I remember games where I ran around you know I could have done 10 kilometres and had a terrible game and another game you did half the running but you were more clued in you were more focused you were where the ball was and you had a much better game so you know Jared, I think GPS is they have to be used probably in the right way I know hurling or football is, is more a game where you, there's a lot of running but positional sense in hurling is massive like you have a corner back or a full back or even a centre back, you could be running all over the place and doing nothing. Because you could have another lad with you know. Yeah. He knows where the ball is going to be. You know, um like you know, Brian Whelan. I always love the story about Brian Whelan. He was playing beside side the guy or he was managing the team, I think, and he just couldn't understand how the lads weren't winning the ball. Like and well, how do you win it, Brian? You just go where the ball is and you win it. You know this in his head because he just went where the ball. He was doing it since he was probably five or six years of age, blowing bar himself and Johnny Pilkington, Dahi Regan and the lads. You know, and that that was his way of doing it. So I think GPSs they have to be used 
with kind of common sense knowledge, really. But yeah, go back there with no, they're only coming in that time. And they tried to stay away from really because we're only giving out the two or three players at a time. <laughs> <laughs> How did they pick who got them? Was it like the, the lads they thought weren't doing any work? It's like, right. And it's kind of like, this is the special babe for you because we don't think you're doing any work. So off you go. <laughs> and we was just handing to Conor Fover and these lads. We knew they brought and they used their fitness. We say, listen, they're, they're best used on me. So we just, you know, ah, no, I, I'm not sure. I can't really, to be honest. But I remember there was only a few of them anyway. You tried not to have one, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Tommy, good stuff. Great to have you with us. Thanks. Okay, lads. Good morning. Bye-bye. Bye. Tommy Walsh, back with us this morning. Uh, suitably wetting the appetite for this year's championship, I think. Oh, yeah. Just want to. I want to watch hurling now. I mean, and uh, it's uh, like it does feel. Uh, is there anything that they can do to try and make these games around this time of year more? Uh, I, I don't know, not interesting because there, there's a lot of very interesting storylines. But how, how can they make them matter a little bit more? Like I guess what they've done is that they've made summer so awesome that it's it's very hard to to look at any other format. I was thinking about this, right? So there's too much. There's there's all the football matters because of the Towson Cup kind of but also because the Division 1 quality is so good and the hurling is on at the same time so there's these weekends where if you want to keep up to speed with what's going on it's like three matches on Saturday and three matches on Sunday and you need to watch them all because something relevant is happening in all of them like Wexford have been reborn Uh, Tip were going great until Wexford beat them Galway have Henry Shefflin as their manager Cork are back and Limerick are potentially the greatest team of all time all at the same time and the Dubs have won every game like it's it's a, a mad start to the league campaign yeah and and the quality of hurling that Antrim have been doing is like proper division one hurling and they've been really unfortunate there's a million narratives there where you could literally do three hours on hurling four nights a week at the moment and it's not even championship no um, so there is a problem and it's on, they're on the same time and they're on the same week and they're all it is this very condensed season I was actually thinking about this in the context of the uh, folding in the camogie and the women's Gaelic football if they're all if the split season is going to be intercounty first and club second for all of these sports then I think they're missing a trick wouldn't it be great if the intercounty men's and the intercounty women's were divorced from each other so that club season and uh, inter-county season are reversed because if you look at the lessons that the Six Nations have learned putting everything on at the same time diminishes the amount of coverage that you can get they, they, they split the Six Nations women's last season and it was the first year that it got separate coverage because the games aren't on the same day they're not completely overshadowed I think that like that might be the solution to the oh we're handing over coverage to the other sports like well we're not we're just going to have the women's be the second half of the year and the men's be the first half of the year and there's inter-county action all year round for everybody to go and support their county team like, that would be a really good idea that, that's, it's very hard to, to counter that because I would say that even the men's side of things would probably face the worst weather of the year given that your uh, women's All-Ireland would kick off or your league would kick off in July and you can have a little bit of an overlap in the middle when 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 it's the Absolutely. getting to the semi-finals and finals of the men's the first couple of rounds of of the women's leagues could, could kick off and then you've got your All Irelands in October November and I dare say that it's not going to be as bad as uh, January February March when uh, the majority of the men's season is on I think it's a great idea and I'm not sure has it been mooted 
in, in, in those talks but I haven't, I haven't seen it anywhere it's a great um, shout the, the, so this is a story in the papers today LGFA chief warns integration not a silver bullet for facilities a war of words has broken out between uh, the LGFA and Liam O'Neill although Liam O'Neill is trying not to um, so he was in the papers uh, um talking about how he had tried to get this going in, I think it was 2014 when he was the president. But Helen O'Rourke has said the LGFA is not opposed to integration with the GA and Camogie Association. She warned that a merger of the three might not be the silver bullet to ensuring equal access to playing facilities. It's also the back page of the Mail this morning. Michael Clifford and Owen Cormack can both have this story in the Examiner and the Mail. So, um, Helen O'Rourke has said in her annual report, which is head uh, of Congress this weekend, um, she says O'Neill sought. Well, she's claiming O'Neill sought to ram through a merger before his term ended in 2015. She's alleged that O'Neill was insistent on it happening in his term or not at all. That's a quote, lamenting how different the GA family might look today if the process started in 2014 had continued then for the right reasons. Uh, O'Neill has said that um, he doesn't think there's any benefit in looking back on past failures, nor did he wish to get involved in controversy. Uh, um, and there was a line there which I can't find now but it was about um, talking the language of unity he wants to speak the language of unity now so I think that's a good line despite the public perception for some years this is Helen O'Rourke in her Congress report the LGFA is not against integration of the three associations quite the opposite in fact and we do not need outside influences and uninformed sources to tell us that this is where the future lies are the outside influences the GPA? who else is, who else is involved here? I'm not sure. Our stance at all times has been to ensure that a proper open-minded process would take place involving stakeholders of all three associations where matters relating to integration at all levels of the associations would be debated and ironed out prior to the formation of a new incorporated body. So they are talking about a new incorporated body as well, not just the the GEA with the bolt on. Um, so the Congress last week, yay, let's do this. Um, the LGFA saying, hang on a second now, you're blaming us for what happened in the past. That's not accurate. We were being... Um, uh, what was that phrase? Rammed. It was being rammed. Whatever. Uh, uh, to ram through a merger. It's interesting. I don't think this is. Um, don't think it's going to be straightforward at all. Mm. Like, like, there's definitely been a question about who's been holding this whole thing up over the last little while, and it's still very hard to get any clear answer on that. Yeah, it is hard. Um, I don't know why they can't all just get in a room and go. We're starting the process. This is the process. This is our intended outcome. Here's how we're going to get there. Like, there's loads of outside consultancy firms who could help with this. What are the gaps? What would prevent it from happening? What are the must, the red lines? And what's our stated aim? It seems like it should be relatively straightforward, but it's interesting in that um, these three separate organisations can't, for whatever reason, come together, even though they're all together at club level, Mm. in loads of clubs around the country. Anyway, it's uh, 8.49. If you've got a view on that or any of the stuff that we've talked about, we'd love to hear from you. 0879-180-180 is the WhatsApp number. OTBIM is brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. John Duggan is with us. John. Ger and Owen, how are we doing? Yeah, pretty good. What's going on? Uh, well, three more clubs will be in the FA Cup quarterfinals tonight. Liverpool against Norwich. we got Chelsea going to Luton and Southampton-West Ham. That latter game should be very interesting with both clubs in form. We had the whole Spurs debate last week, so there's no point going back over all oh, ground. Oh, no, well, that's, not, that's not how life works, John. It is. That's in my, in my how, world, it is. That's not how life works. We had the whole debate last week, and then we thought they turned a corner at the weekend. Yeah. We were like, oh, I can, I can take the Burnley thing and can put it in the context of the other two results either side, but it's on, off, on, off. That's what seems to be happening. Uh, how are you feeling? Karate kit, wax on, wax off. Uh, apathetic. Not that is on. I, I have no idea, to be honest. You've not seen the Karate Kid movie? 
I've seen the Karate Kid, John. Okay, that's right then. Uh, so <laughs> minor, a little bit of a. Uh, tension just developed there but I managed to quell it yeah you've probably seen Cobra Kai and I haven't seen that to be fair Uh, it's grand I've heard it's fantastic you've heard it's fantastic yeah all my friends rave about it well I mean they're millennials and and my dad he's not a millennial right it's grand I don't know we got a couple of episodes in and we're like this is a bit of hard work maybe it gets better I, I'm, I'm not sure I'd say you just, your taste is just bad that's also potentially inaccurate but go on so Spurs uh, my only reading on Alaz is that he doesn't trust the squad he played the same team and the current players in the first 11 aren't able to do it uh, twice in one week that was my feeling on it because they were flat as pancakes excuse the pun uh, last night and Middlesbrough deserved to win but how did you have your pancakes yesterday folks what did you do you, you bought the ones from Dunn's again, Owen, didn't you? Instead of like... It's literally the easiest thing in the world that. to make. Didn't even do that. You didn't? Didn't have any pancakes yesterday. Well, that's not like you. Normally you get some shop-bought cardboard. Yeah, I, I'm, all, I'm all for that. I think that them down. I think that they're underrated. Um, but no, I actually kind of forgot, to be honest. And, and I was kind of like too lazy when I remembered later. In Religion has just fallen off your radar now that you're godless. Oh no, I'll have ashes on my forehead today, I hope. <laughs> <laughs> hey, John... Pancakes are my favourite food in the world. Oh, wow. Uh, the crepe ones uh, with the old lemon and sugar. But I'm off everything like that since January the 1st. Oh, right. Until Easter Sunday. Wow. So That's hardcore. You're like 80 uh, days, yeah. Yeah, including booze. Everything everything is gone. It's fish and chicken since January the 1st until Easter Sunday. So I think on Easter Sunday, I'll be going a bit mad for about 10 days. What are you going to have? Pancakes, probably. And booze and Easter eggs and nothing else. John Duggan's the man to be with this Easter Sunday. Yeah, I'm going to rise again. So um, I'll be hanging off the chandelier somewhere. Right, that sounds the good. First day of my holidays. And then we've got the Grand National the next day, so it'll be good fun. Um, so yeah, Spurs, yeah, look, there's not much to be said. I, I really, I've got nothing to say. <laughs> all, all the, other than that, the two hours of drafts cost me two hours sleep last night. Conte, oh, Afterwards, he was quite mellow. So Where look, they go, you know? Or maybe he didn't care about the cup. Is that, is it? Was, uh, no, I think he would, I, I, we all care. I really would have loved to, I'd love to have gone to an FA Cup final. We haven't been one in 31, 31 years. Um, and we need to win trophies. Spurs need to win trophies for the, the whole uh, mental concept of Spurs being a, a wishy-washy team that are flaky. Um, I, it's, it's all about the summer. What he gets in the summer. Does he get money in the summer and who he buys? But, like, Kulusevsky, to be fair, has been a good signing. Yeah, they're already very quick. Is there more news or is it time for us to get into? Um, not much. Like Cuevin Kelleher was interested in Klopp saying at the press conference that he's not for sale, he's not going anywhere. Then he kind of pivoted to, yeah, well, if he does go out and loan... But he sees him as a quality asset behind Addison at the moment. Alone next year, if, if once once Klopp has put that out there, it's hard to put that genie back in the bottle if you're Kelleher, right? You're like, oh, I could go on loan. Yeah. I, we should explore that in the summer, boss. Let's do that. I think Klopp just wants to make sure that he's got backup behind Allison if Kelleher does go. Yeah. Um, other than that, Roman. So look. Well, it'd be interesting to see. We'll keep close eye on that over the next while. Uh, who at some point in the future, like, oh, we shouldn't have sold that. Go, okay, football clubs should be in the ownership of fans' trusts. Anyway, we'll talk about that again. We've already talked about it this morning, but if you've got a view on it, you can get us 087-9180-180. It's time for Virtual Insanity. You have entered Power Drive. Oh, wow! 
So this is the Arnold Palmer Invitational, and it starts tomorrow in Bay Hill in Florida. And I've got four golfers for you, okay? These are on otbsports.com and on the OTB app if you want a further rationale. But the first one, the headline tip this week, we got uh, 1,200 from 1,000, 20% profit for the year so far. Last week, it was a Willy Wonka moment. It was Keith Mitchell tied for ninth, just out of the places. You get nothing. But we go again this week, right? So the headliner, Matt Fitzpatrick of England, has never won on the PGA Tour. Four each way, 30 to 1, is in great form. Had a stomach bug, missed the Genesis Invitational before that. Tenth at Phoenix, sixth at Pebble Beach, is second on strokes gained on the PGA Tour this season. Has got a great record at Bay Hill. Look at it. Tied 10th, tied 9th and 2nd in the last three years. Won the US Amateur uh, back in 2013. I think Matt Fitzpatrick is going to break through and this could be the week for him to do it at 30-1 to 1 for 4 each way. That is the headliner. The second one, Rory McIlroy for 12-1 to 1 for 3 each way. The reason why he's not the headline tip is because um, I think his irons need a bit of work. His wedge game needs a bit of work. On the other hand I think Rory McIlroy is generally a guaranteed each way play in a lot of these things for small profit. When you think about it, the last 5 stars to Bay Hill. He's been in the top 10 every single time. He won it in 2018 with the 64. We know he drives the ball very well. I've had four par fives and a par 72. 12-1-3 each way for Rory McIlroy's number two. Number three is Keith Mitchell, who I put up last week as a headliner. 35-1 to one for three each way, playing the best golf of his life uh, three times in the top 12 in his last four starts. And at Bay Hill, he's got a tie for fifth and a tie for sixth in three starts. Once again, great off the tee, Keith Mitchell. Puts well on the Bermuda Greens. I think he's a rock-solid proposition. You've got to stick with these people. And lastly, uh, Christian Bazaudenhout is 55-1 to one, uh, for three each way. Actually, 60-1. to one. I got him three each way, 62 one uh, for Christian Bazadenhout from South Africa. This is the course where he made his mark a couple of years ago. He was fourth going into the final round, finished tied for 18th. Last year, we put him up in the slot for this tournament and he finished solo seventh. He closed with a 66 last week at the Honda Classic. And I think like South Africans, like Bazadenhout, are not afraid to win. He's won a lot of times the European Tour on tough courses. So Bazadenhout, uh, Mitchell, McElroy and the headliner, Matt Fitzpatrick, for the Bay Hill Invitational, which is now called the Arnold Palmer Invitational, starts tomorrow. Patrick Harrington and Gray McDowell are also in the field, as are John Rowan and Victor Hovland. And also, bonus content, you want to check out otbsports.com and OTB app for the Puerto Rico Open. I've also made selections for that tournament. So we did a double one this week, lads, and hopefully we'll get some return out of it. All right, otbsports.com forward slash virtual insanity to get the uh, tips and to check how they're going over the course of the weekend as well. That's this week's virtual insanity. You have entered Power Drive. Oh, wow! Right, more from John, of course, on Saturday afternoon on Off the Ball on News Talk from 1 o'clock. Uh, reminder OTBAM is brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. Let's turn our attention at 8.57 this morning to rugby. Here's Felipe Contepomi being linked with the vacant Argentina head job. He was asked about it yesterday. Have a look. Well, it, it, it would be great as a professional. Um, when you're in professional sport, it's very, very difficult to to plan ahead too much, you know. So it would be great if I can draw the line how I want my career to happen. You know, maybe um, as a doctor you can pre-call, like I'm doing two years here, five years there, then move into, and if that doesn't happen. But imagine that. Lionel Messi, one of the best, greatest ever sport footballers, he couldn't decide about his future, what is left for us, you know. Uh, so it's not much that you can do. Definitely, I, w- I would say, 
uh, if you ask me, would you like to coach internationally? Well, yes, I can say yes. When? I don't know. Because in this profession, I think you prepare yourself and you're always preparing yourself. And, and um, when opportunities arrive, uh, you just go for them, you know. But um, I can tell you here in Lancer, I'm still developing and I'm, I'm still growing. I feel I'm still learning every single day. So... The day I stagnate in my learning curve in a place, that's the moment you definitely have to move on. For the moment, it didn't happen here in Leinster to me. All right, that's uh, Felipe Contepomi, who obviously has been linked with the vacant Argentina head coaching gig. It kind of came up surprisingly enough, uh, given that we're relatively close in rugby terms. Uh, you know, it's mid-cycle for a World Cup. Um, I, he he was an Argentina number ten himself, so it's fair enough for him to compare himself to Leo Messi. Yeah, and like I, mean, I think it's fair enough for him to be in the mix for the job as well. I think he's probably given a fairly clear answer there, though, that he's still developing his coaching career and going in to be the head coach of his own nation is a pretty high stakes job to take if you're not fully ready yet. Maybe Argentina are not in the best place either. I think they haven't played a home test since 2019 or something like that at this point. So COVID has really ravaged a lot of the Southern Hemisphere teams and especially Argentina's chance of progression over the last little while. They are one of those teams that, as we know well, tend to peak perfectly well, for the World Cup. I was going to say, is that not the perfect time to yeah. ride in where, you know, oh, look, I don't have that much experience. Well, it's going to be a learning curve for me. We haven't had home matches. Uh, everybody's around the world and you get them all back together and you go, everybody says we're rubbish. What are you going to do about Felipe is the man. Yeah, like I mean, I guess he can do that with uh, the Leinster players after their I mean, chasing defeat to, yeah, to well. La Rochelle last year. He's like everybody thinks that we're too small, not big enough, and maybe that's what he's doing. So this do year. we. We've just signed a big South African, and <laughs> so that's uh, that, that's where he's going to go with this. Yeah, like I think that he's part of a really good coaching staff. I think Stuart Lancaster and Leo Cullen probably two amazing people to work around I'd suggest and if you're working in Northern Hemisphere rugby but then I would suggest that if he's thinking about a dream do- job down the line I'm sure that being the head coach of Argentina is the, is the one that he would like to get so yeah. uh, now's not the time it seems is, well, is what he's trying to say I don't, I, Is he saying that? No, I, that sounded like a uh, uh, come and get me plea in what? stereotypical football no. That's what I heard I was like yeah of course, want, of course they want to manage it uh, Of course they want like I, like if, they, sort of, if they ring me up, I'm going to talk to them. Yeah, but he said now is not the time, essentially, because he laid it out in black and white that he's still learning. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, that's what you say. You can't say, yeah, I'm ready for this job, because then everybody, you're like, look. I, I'm I, taking him. I always take press conferences at face value. Well, I, I really want him to stay. It's, 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 we haven't had enough club rugby this year. We just haven't had enough club rugby. So, and we haven't had a period where there's eight, ten weeks in a row where we're watching the the team playing against good quality opposition uh, in fixtures that are in the fixture list for a long period of time that you can go, we're going to see what happens over this period of time. And they have too many players at the moment who are all uh, capable of playing in the team. So it's very difficult to know exactly how well Leinster are doing. They seem to be doing brilliantly, but um, I definitely want to see a couple of seasons of Felipe's influence uh, on that group and, and to hear that the out-halves and the backs talk about the influence Harry Byrne missed out on Ireland's Six Nations squad Felipe was um, asked about him because obviously they've they've um, been picking him and his brother and his brother's starting at 10 and he's playing in the centre so here's Felipe talking a bit about that Well for me I think he, he has to be happy that he's getting minutes you know when was the last time he played three games in a row I can't remember or I don't know if I've been here <laughs> so now that he's been having a few 
games, you know, under his belt and, and, and for 80 minutes and then, well, then uh, one 80 minutes, 60 and then another 60 last, last weekend. So I think it's, it's good for him, you know, that's what he needs to play. Now, obviously, I'm, I'm pretty sure he would love to play uh, 10, you know, because he's a natural 10, but for what I've spoken to him and he's, he's feel happy just to play and, and, and you know, doing it um, with his brother and, and being... Uh, at the same time, when they play in that unbroken play or unstructured, he, he puts himself a lot in the first position as a first receiver, you know, so... Um, yeah, no, he's, he's good. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? Uh, when play breaks down, he puts himself in at number 10. It's like, out of the air. <laughs> that's what you need, though, right? Everybody's given out about uh, Carberry at the weekend not being Johnny Sexton. It's like, next next guy up is not... He, he's going to learn from that. Mm. Yeah, like, it's... I, I, would you say that there's still a window here for someone like Harry Byrne to kind of... Uh, ran his way in as to use that uh, LGFA phrase into the, there is, into the uh, squad before next year like uh, I think that the, the questions still remain about what's going to happen with that jersey over the next little while and it's very hard to, to gauge exactly how it's going to turn out and you can look at that through the collection of outhouses that are currently operating within the Ireland camp or you can look a little bit outside because Contepomi is obviously working with Harry Byrne and then there's um uh, obviously a couple of, of guys coming through at, at, at Munster and um, it'll be very interesting to see as well what Connacht will do recruitment wise this summer as well because there's obviously uh, a couple of younger again out halves in, in Leinster that'll be coming through looking for game time and the backlog that already exists at Leinster will just get longer Well we were talking about Frawley as yeah. being that potential out half centre player and then it's like actually they pick Harry Byrne there for a couple of games and it's like oh, which, which of them is it going to be and ultimately we expect it won't be any of them because it's going to be Ringrose and Henshaw in the centre mm. for Leinster. Yeah, so he's kind of pushed out. Yeah, and that question that question persists then about the Ireland team for England. Who are you picking in your centres? If let's say the return to play protocols all go well for uh, Robbie Henshaw, it seems that will be the case. Everybody's going to be fit. It's Aki, it's Ringrose, and it's Henshaw. You can pick two. Who are yeah, you picking? The first two, you're picking Aki and Ringrose, I think, and. Uh, are you? Well, I mean, oh, Robbie Hench our best player over the last 18 months and uh, just coming back as well and I'd like you, out of those three who is the least droppable for a game against England I know he got sent off last year but the answer is Bundy Aki isn't it Aki has to start against England so who are you picking at 13 are you picking well I don't think Rose is droppable at the moment so, so why does Aki have to start because of the power but maybe maybe we need to try not to just use power because ultimately they're going to get Manu Tulagi back. And when Manu comes back, do you have to pick Aki to play against him? Or do you think, what's going to happen here? What is there a way of beating Manu Tulagi without power? Maybe there isn't. Maybe, maybe it's simple. Like, it's Maybe not, but it's not just a, about like beating them with that either. I think at every position, if you have an added layer of power, it's going to benefit you. So it's... It's not just about necessarily how you target England on that front. I think also Aki's just been excellent as well and I, I think he's possibly been Ireland's best midfielder over the last little while. So, he's playing pretty well. Um, he's playing pretty well. But, and, and it's like what is the, the the one thing that he brings with it the others don't and, and maybe it is that, that powerful running. Um, against England last year it was Henshaw 13, Aki at 12 uh, which was their, their starting midfield. Obviously there was uh, a situation where uh, Aki goes off and Henshaw's man of the match and uh, that's 
again, it's a, it's a full year from uh, away at this point. Yeah, so and Ringrose's form wasn't great this time last year compared to what, what it is mm. now. Like he's he's definitely um, taken the setback of the lines and and kicked on. Um, Kian Prendergast was also out talking. He was uh, one of the developmental players called up to the Ireland squad. This is from the Connacht press conferences yesterday about what he learned from his time so far in the Irish camp. Well, I think when you always go up a standard, it always it's always raised, and the the intensity of training goes up, and the speed of training and the quality of play, like ultimately you have the best, some of the best players in the world. You're training with them every day, so you always feel like you have loads to work on. Um, but then I think when you start, like for me, the first couple of days I was kind of a bit all over the place. My head was a bit scrambled because there were so much new things to learn. But and then I just tried my best to kind of stick to my game and then take on board what the coaches were saying and then uh, go from there. Like there's, there's obviously things you can work on and stuff like that, but I think you don't want to get away from what's got you there rather than um, like, don't try to change your game completely. Obviously work on the things you've been told that, that need to be worked on that can take you to that next, next step, but don't ultimately come away from what makes you the rugby player you are. Kildare's Keane Prendergast there, of course, uh, a member of the Suncroft GA club, Anthony Rainbow's club. Like How great a team would we be if we had him? I was just about to ask, yeah, is he not also being drafted into the, the movement in Newbridge this year? I mean, look, if the. If, no, the split season's ruined that, hasn't it? Yes. There'll yes, never be a situation where anybody can, can double job. I mean, if, can you, if I, I would like to think if Glenn Ryan is thinking about the situation, logically, he'll look at the squad announced for the All Blacks tour, and if uh, a certain seat Prendergast is not on that team sheet, it's like, come on in. Yeah. Full back. Full forward? Uh, uh, midfielder? Yeah, like a, a hard-running right half-forward who his job it is to sweep around the half-back line and then yeah. tear forward. Yeah, yeah, that, that works. That works. Like, Prendergast has been uh, excellent all season and it's going to be very exciting to see where this guy actually goes over the next little while. He also seems like an absolute pain to play against, not just in the sense of obviously what he brings physically, but also uh, if he gets one over on you, he uh, he likes to rub it in your face a little bit. A little bit like James Lowe, a little bit of a, if you're uh, if you're an opposition fan on a provincial level, you're like, screw that guy. But uh, that guy is going to be playing for Ireland and all of a sudden everybody from uh, the four provinces will be well, uh, happy that that guy is. A little, a little bit of that attitude is exactly what Connacht need, right? Ah, a little bit of nastiness. Really I, I mean, there's no sense that, like, I mean, he, he is... Um, He's underhanded or anything in his play. It's just just the 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 after effects of a, of a big collision or something like that. But you, like that's that's what we possibly need more of, not only in a comic sense but in an Ireland sense as well. It's something Joe Schmidt would not have um, been too hot on, but that the the new Ireland is like, well, come on, mm. let's have a little bit of this. Uh, eight minutes past nine this morning here on OTBM brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day on the Gaelic football I'm not sure I should be reading out some of this I really shouldn't MOC says Mayo are bottlers carry a shoe in for All-Ireland this year shoe spelt S-H-O-E by the way uh, so it'll be a toe in the hole for Kerry to kick them through the door is that it? That's exactly what he as means as opposed to like um, you know shoe 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 uh, Lauros says Mayo are worth a bet but looking at Kerry at the moment they're really playing great football as a team and Barry says I shouldn't read this out Mayo are a joke of a county always chokers but they're not a joke of a county they're the opposite like they come back year after year after year after year they, they really they should be the undead and in fairness that takes far more work than it does to be uh, luxuriating in glory or leaning back on your one all Ireland every three years like you guys do 
Mm-hmm. Like it's pretty easy to get everybody to go up and go. Sure, there's an all Ireland for you. All you got to do is play five, six years, you'll win one. It's guaranteed. Yeah, that's easy. Like, of course, whereas, that's so easy, isn't it? Whereas with these lads, it's like you're you're. The, I offer you nothing but blood, sweat, toil, and tears, and perhaps eventual defeat again and again and again and again. We might score two on goals in an all Ireland final, lads, and we might lose. Yeah, <laughs> we might not lose, but we lose the replay. Because all the only county who's gone through hardship, of course, is Mayo. Well, they're the only county who's gone through that level the, of hardship the, the for only, so long. The only county who would have been at like a, a meaningful Ireland that isn't an easy one would be Mayo, of course. That's that's your point here. You're <laughs> like you're, you're like indirecting every other county in Ireland this morning, being like, you know, you're one in every three years, all Ireland and all that. But look, I mean, that's just that's just the forces that that everybody else has to deal with. Uh, I, I do. Think wow, what was what was the bitterness I'm, there? I'm, I'm, I'm kind of only joking to be honest, but like, I, I, you hate Mayo. It's mad how you hate Mayo, and they're like punching down. You just punch down at them all the time. Not punching down at Mayo whatsoever. I love Mayo. I mean, you don't. Uh, Super Veach says Tommy Rockin that Tullerone style. Uh, very nice top. Um, Felipe's top also very nice. Didn't actually spot it. Better, better, better than us. The the fashion on the clips we're playing and the people we're talking to is of a higher calibre than ours this morning. Well, that's always the way. I don't think it'll take much for that. Uh, Richard says, it's an exciting time to be a Wexford hurling fan. I can only imagine how, like, county goes completely crazy when Davy Fitz is there. There's the uh, Leinster title. Gory is absolutely rammed full of people. And then it all disappears. You think, oh, it's gone again. Just because that's the way it has been. It's been like a little oasis and then it goes and then it's a little oasis and then it goes. And those in between the oasis are famine. But, like, it looks like they're back, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, like it's, it, we want to jump to the, the to those conclusions in a positive sense, uh, but also at the same time say that Limerick have gone nowhere as a result of early uh, defeat. So I think the truth is probably somewhere in the middle, and I think I'd be keen to see how Wexford go this summer. The last full year of the Leinster Championship was fascinating, and I'm looking forward to that again this year. Like four teams, uh, and one of those four uh, generally going to be in a state of of jeopardy in terms of getting knocked out early on. So I think the fact that Dublin and and Wexford are going so strong bodes bodes really well because the other two will always be good and will always be the, 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 not always but they would probably be two of the favourites to progress from that Leinster group this year so I think Munster everybody knows it's been so so good uh, I think the Leinster thing in, in, in 2019 in particular was was excellent uh, John S says lads having Tommy back on the show is a sign that nature is healing feels that way doesn't it mm, absolutely back doors in the championships is that, like we've needed them yeah and I, I, I yeah Next, I'm making the point earlier on about Mayo that All Ireland they, they reached when um, Dublin won it in the they beat Tipperary in the All Ireland semi final and Tipperary Division Four team as we've seen there was a great momentary flowering but like Cork needed a fluky win against Kerry Tip needed a win against Cork and ultimately that was great in a giant killing sense but the whole point of the back door is that the best teams need to be in an All-Ireland semi-final the finals It's true Mayo did beat Tipperary in an All-Ireland semi-final before COVID as well and uh, that year of 2016 when Tipperary went on that great run and beat Galway in an All-Ireland quarter-final so it does happen but the thing is I guess that that upset is kind of there's a journey to that as well like Tipperary weren't Munster champions in 16 uh, they did manage to come through the back door and they did manage to take out Galway in, in Croke Park in, a, in an All-Ireland quarter-final so that story had like a load of a lot of backing to it, and that 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 felt like a, a bit of a fairy tale. But um, it it did it, it did just cheapen the whole thing in 2020 for sure. Yeah, uh, Kerry ruined it basically. OTBAM is brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. Uh, we're going to get to your football comments in just a couple of moments, and we're going to talk football with Phil next. OTBAM. Jimmy Highland could become that marquee inside man for Kildare. He lo- he looks like he's threatening it, James. 
What do you like about this guy? I, I like that. The fact that he has the potential to be the main man. And I think he wants that. And I think he'll thrive under that kind of responsibility. And he'll take that off Flynn a bit. If they can share that responsibility and have Woodgate chipping in, I think they have a very strong threesome there. But Paddy kind of nailed it for me. He's very smart. He takes the mark at the right time. His movement is good. He takes his time. He chips his free. I just think he's, he's, he's just all there in the head. And he doesn't get too flustered. Or he's not doing stupid shots. He's just a smart player. But one thing that, that I noticed about him is that he can snap over a shot with no room whatsoever. Like if he gets it left or right, once it's in his hand, he can just snap it over, which is, which is a great attribute. But it also gives you kind of more options because if you're marking, I think we spoke about it a couple of weeks ago on the pod, that if you are corner forward and your defender knows that you have that snapshot, he's going to be down on your boot. He's going to be saying, I'm not letting this fella get the shot off. He's going to be down on you. And if he can just, if he can work a dummy or some sort of a drawback to get in for a couple of goal chances, I think it would add to his game no end. Is it, a rare, got, is it a rare quality, that snapshot? Like, do you see the many footballers around at the minute? I have an example of someone who reminds me of Connor Mortimer from, okay. from back in the glory days. I played with Mort at DCU and yeah. uh, would have played, obviously. Yeah. He was going to come around the scene with Dublin and he was still with Mayo. Mort was never a brilliant goal scorer. He was never a... Um, he was never a guy that could, would burn two or three fellas, but he was a smart forward. And if he got half a sniff, he'd kick scores. I think he, he got a sole all-star 2006, I think. Mayo got to the All-Ireland final, and he was a big player for DCU in terms of winning the Sigerson Cup and things like that. But that was, he was a guy who just knew what he was brilliant at, and he nailed that. Right, they're the comparisons that uh, James O'Donoghue and Paddy Andrews are making alongside Tommy Rooney, talking about Jimmy Highland there on episode six of the football pod the uh, buzz is definitely back around Kildare football we're, uh, we're doing our best uh, I'm doing my best to suppress it just because it's the hope that kills you why? why not enjoy yourself? Well, I, I, sorry I, I, I definitely uh, that That's was you'd be saying to every, anybody else that was Sunday well it's just because it's like it's hard you know ultimately all life ends in heartbreak like I mean you didn't go two footed in on Wales after we smashed them to Six Nations this year you're not rubbing it in Dublin people's faces but the fact that there's a Dublin studio right now this year uh, after Kildare's why, why aren't you being a dick about this? I mean, that would be true to form. <laughs> well, because uh, the square ball goal that we got taken away against us, uh, against, um, sorry, there was one scored against us when down reached the Ireland final in uh, 2010. And then uh, Donegal, we had one where we scored comes back off the upright and they give a square ball and you're like ah, what the so somehow the fates will conspire to thwart us at the moment where it looks like we're about to seize the ultimate glory something what, will happen what about celebrating two valuable National League points well, we did we did you could see the celebrations on the pitch you, you did like, I absolutely did I absolutely did in, in, in private uh, and uh, the very unofficial Kildare Supporters Club yesterday put us on a graphic did you I see saw that? that actually yeah in our Newbridge or Nowhere jerseys. <laughs> I, uh, I'm i an honorary fan. Well, there you go. Uh, no, I, I mean, it's it's brilliant to have players who are endlessly exciting and at a stage of their careers where you don't know what the ceiling is. Um, so, good to hear the lads talking about that. A brilliant, Another brilliant episode of the Football Pod. Um, 
thought it couldn't get any better after last year with James Dunning, who obviously just brings uh, something completely different to the whole thing. Uh, right, let's move on. Phil Egan, good morning to you. How are you doing, I can't believe your Gaelic football team is so shit. Yeah, I mean... How look, am I doing? Is that the right... Uh, yes. Is yeah. that how it works? Keep it going. I'm no, like, I, I was kind of sitting here thinking, I mean, would you be celebrating a win over the Dubs? Because everyone's beating the Dubs these days. Oh, it's true. Six in a row. It's like celebrating beating Liverpool last season. Yeah, exactly. I mean... Look at some of the teams, like even Everton. Shouldn't shouldn't you do it every time you get the opportunity to? Because it might not come around again. Isn't that the other side of this? Possibly. It's like well, yeah. The, the example there is Everton won at Anfield last season, and who knows when they they'll win there again? They thought that was a new normal. Yeah, but there was no one there to see it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, imagine if we like. Isn't it better that uh, those couple of years that that we had to watch the boring football that Jack O'Connor provided for us at Kildare instead of the good stuff that we have now that the crowds are all able to get there and see it. Yeah, exactly. So as I said about Liverpool last season, if you were going to have a, a season that was a bad one, which they still somehow rescued with a third-place finish, but it, that was the time to do it when there was no fans there. They got their act together, actually, as the fans started to come back. Mm. Remember the last day of the season when they beat Palace to, to secure a top-four finish that they actually had 10,000 at Anfield. So... Um, don't waste your bad football on the on the fans. Waste it on the the empty stadiums. Yeah, a good idea. Um, I, uh, before we get into um, Burnley Leicester and the, and the Premier League, we should talk about Crystal Palace last night in the cup. Uh, their young left back was a, an Irish kid, uh, Teo Adaramola, who I think hasn't played that much yet for the first team. But it's a big enough game at the stage of the competition yeah. to be to be getting in. He's um, his first start. Played sixty minutes. Yeah, and. You were not festooned with left backs. I mean, maybe, maybe we're playing a right back out of position at left back, but maybe now we have a left back who probably isn't going to play that much in the Premier League for the rest of the season, but certainly is is, um, is being trusted in big moments. Yeah, it, it always excites Irish football fans when they see a young Irish player being thrown into the first team, and people say it's you know it's the FA Cup, but Crystal Palace are one of those sides where give it a shot because they're safe in the Premier League. I know Southampton and West Ham are playing tonight. There are two other clubs that you would think you have a fair crack. Maybe West Ham, like I know they they probably have their eyes on the, the top four race as well and they're still in the Europa League. But certainly a team like Southampton who are in good form would be targeting FA Cup success. And I would put Crystal Palace in the same bracket. So for Vieira to, to throw him in there, that can only be a good thing and you know the fact that he, he got over an hour and Crystal Palace is uh, Sellers Park is one of those stadiums that on, on its night can be absolutely hopping like so great experience for him and um, yeah hopefully the sign of things to come it, the Ireland squad the, it's going to be interesting to see who he names like I, I don't know if um, any of the players who are in that age group at the moment are close to the Ireland squad for what's going to be a very important campaign from Stephen Kenny's perspective or do you bring them in and show them around and say this is going to be you this time next year or the year after if you get your head down and get a few games I don't, what's the what's the way to manage that throughput of players well I think like somebody like Daramolo who's you know he's still a teenager like his next step is a, is a call up to the 21s but yeah there's there's players in the 21 squad that Stephen Kenny will have definitely earmarked for call-ups to the senior squad whether they're ready sometimes you see managers call up players just to train I remember I know Jack Byrne was on the show yesterday speaking to Nathan and you know he's he's still only 25 but you think back to when Martin O'Neill was in charge I remember Jack Byrne was called in to train with the 
with the senior squad. I think it was it was him and Callum O'Dowd because I remember Jack Byrne came into the press conference. This young lad who was uh, on loan over in Holland, but was on the books at Manchester City and was taking it all in a stride. But just to get that, get a look at them and what they're like against the the senior players. Well, it, I, we played a clip of Kim Prendergast earlier on, who'd been called up to train with the Ireland rugby squad, and he yeah. said his brain was fried for the first few days. Just kind of, oh, these are some of the best players in the world. Like getting that out of the system as early as possible, so that when an injury it forces. Uh, us to pick one of these players and play a game because that that frequently happens where it's like you come from nowhere you play a game and maybe you stick in the squad or maybe you don't afterwards Um, uh, removing as much of the brain fry as possible would be good yeah absolutely also as well like if you're Stephen Kenny you want to see how they adapt to the environment and I'd say it's almost a case if you look at their behaviour as well not only what they do on the pitch but off the pitch you know do they interact with their teammates, what are they like? Uh, can they handle the, is it? Is it a, is it too much for them, or do they take it all on their stride? Just you get to know about personalities and yeah. knowing then if if it comes to a big game that you can say, yeah, I'm throwing you straight in. I think you're ready for it. I think you can handle it. You've got the temperament for it. Yeah, the other thing that came out in that Nathan interview with Jack Byrne was the text from Stephen Kenny. Yeah. You know, and and. Not the fact that he did it, but the fact that it had such an impact. Like Jack Byrne said, I can't explain the impact that it had on me, but it really did have an impact. And that is the managerial, man management skills that we've heard people talk about that are intangible with Kenny. The players who played with him, who, who got on with him over a long period of time, it seems would go to war for him pretty quickly. And um, I should really stop using language like that about sport because it doesn't matter anymore. But anyway... Um, like that man management skill that he has is something that has clearly come across and you know I'm sure I'm sure he's in contact with all these players who are making their debuts and, and um, the other thing that was announced was a record season ticket sales yeah. for the Republic of Ireland I don't know how long we've been keeping track of this but it's it's very interesting it's like the, the home slate of games this year is not great is it? No well obviously you've got the the Belgium game later on this month but there is something I think we've seen it with the start of the the new League of Ireland season as well there is some sort of a, like there's a buzz about Irish football where it's maybe the fact that there's there's new people in the FAI it's a, it gives hope but also like look there's always been a massive interest in football in this country and I think now if it feels like there there could be a change whether the League of Ireland gets the investment that it needs and deserves then that can kick on and obviously there's an excitement about the international team because there's a lot of young players that have now been capped and that only bodes well for the future and the Nations League is obviously something that Stephen Kenny has targeted and then wants to bring it on into the the European campaign so there, yeah there is a real excitement about it and you could see even when the when the crowds came back for the last few games just this team is or the, the the fans are behind this team and behind Stephen Kenny. Yeah, and look, the, the players coming through uh, at that age group, those kind of 17 to 21-year-olds, they're very promising. It's just It feels like it might be a bit too early for them. Or maybe it's not. Maybe this is the campaign where they all smash their way to prominence at international level and, you know, there's a, a good time coming. But it, it it's hard because we don't want to put too much pressure on them and yet we also really desperately need them to deliver quickly. Yeah, exactly. And it goes back to what I said earlier, even about like the, the whole strange situation of the start of Stephen Kenny's tenure where there was nobody there and players were getting 
ruled out of games left, right and centre because of COVID. And just pretty much anything that could go wrong was going wrong. And towards the end of the World Cup qualifiers, it looked like we turned that corner where we were starting to score goals we were playing some nice football the crowds were back there was a there was a buzz and yeah that that was kind of what Stephen Kenny was aiming for was just to blood all these players and then obviously to be he would have liked to have got some more positive results in, in the campaign but he always said it was about being stronger for the the European Championship qualifiers so that's where we're at but it looks like we're on an upward curve and it's probably no surprise then that all these people want season tickets we go back to the Premier League yeah you were watching Burnley last night yeah actually speaking of Irish players um, Nathan Collins actually came on in the game because Ben Mee went off injured fairly looked innocuous at the time he just came in for a slide and tackle to uh, dispossess Pats and Daka but soldiered on for about 10 minutes even went up for a corner and then he couldn't get back and it's like right you're on Nathan Collins and Collins did did okay Burnley, Burnley were doing what Burnley do they were blocking shots and you know I, th- I thought they would have success with set pieces given how bad Leicester have been they've conceded from 18 set pieces this season but they um, probably just didn't get enough corners Burnley and then Brendan Rodgers has the luxury in the 72nd minute of being able to say to James Madison and Jamie Vardy on you go interesting enough Tielemans came off and another game where he wasn't great and obviously a lot of talk about where he's going to be next season and maybe that's what we're seeing with him that the, the head is, is thinking elsewhere I've but heard you make the case that he might be a Virgil van Dijk where it's grand he's so good that he'll be able to bounce back yeah. straight away yeah, because that that was something like you know people say if this is the way he is because he wants to get a move away you know people would question the character of a player but that was said about Van Dyke where he tried to get him he got his move away from Celtic then he wanted to get his move away from Southampton and some people said well you know what's going to happen when he's unhappy at Liverpool or he you know he might think he wants to move away and I mean none of that has happened he's obviously been sensational and nobody ever talks about Van Dijk leaving Liverpool Is Tielemans that good? Uh, he's he's not going to be a game changer for a, a club the way Van Dijk has been for Liverpool but he certainly is a very good player he's technically very good has a goal in him and will complement plenty of the top teams in the Premier League um, who knows maybe he has his eye on a move outside the Premier League I'm sure there would be plenty of teams in the in Europe that would be quite happy to have him in their midfield in terms of the what it did for the relegation scrap you were kind of thinking with 20 minutes ago Everton are going to be in the they were in the bottom three in the as things stands table until Madison scored and then Vardy scored but there's some big games this weekend obviously Tottenham are coming um off the, the disappointment of last night they play Everton next Monday so Everton will know going into that game where they are obviously Leeds first game for Jesse Marsh is away to Leicester and maybe it's a bad time from there because it looks like Vardy's going to be you'd imagine Brendan Rodgers will put him straight back in Madison has been excellent um, I'm not sure why he didn't start him um, maybe he was carrying a knock but he scored two great goals in the Conference League last week for, for Leicester. So Leicester needed that win. That was their first win of 2022 in the league. So, you know, top half finish, maybe win the Europa Conference League. There's still a few teams in there, though, that will give them problems because they haven't been great in Europe. In, in terms of Burnley, they look like the only team in the bottom three that can get out. Mm. Um, and 
Last night's a bit of a disaster for that though, isn't it? They're the games that like so they put in really good performances against Chelsea, unlucky against Liverpool, good against Man United, yeah. like games where they're not supposed to pick up points, but against Leicester who are not in free fall but are having a down season, yeah. you think, Okay, this is it. Like go win this. Yeah, I I, I did feel that Burnley would have enough to get a point out of it where they could just uh, that was Leicester's first clean sheet away from home in the league this season as well. So Burnley, you mentioned Chelsea there. They obviously drew at Stamford Bridge. They actually play Chelsea at Turf Moor on Saturday afternoon. So um, another game to watch as well this weekend in terms of the the fight for survival is you've got Norwich and Brentford. Mm. Brentford leads is who Burnley are eyeing up, not Everton. Yeah. Now, saying that though, Christian Eriksen came off the bench last week in the defeat to Newcastle and showed glimpses. There was a lovely ball where he he played first time and you wonder could he be the player that just gives Brentford that bit of a a spark that gets them going again um, because it looked like they'd be okay I, I didn't pick them to go down at the start of the season I just thought they're a bit of an unknown quantity a bit like Sheffield United were when they came up and they have a certain way of playing they'd be quite tough to beat in their own patch and that's the way it started but teams maybe have worked them out a bit also just as the season goes on, you start picking up injuries and it's uh, it just becomes a bit of a slog and the more games you lose, obviously the confidence has taken a bit of a hit. So maybe Ericsson could be the player to turn it around for them. Hard to know what is going to happen with Leeds. Um, you know, they've, they've 12 games to save it. In terms of getting rid of Bielsa, they've got rid of him at the end of the tough run of games where you, I kind of wondered if he could see out the Spurs game then you were going into games where you think, right, they can actually start winning a few of these. But um, obviously Leeds decided enough is enough and now it's uh, it's a time for Jesse Marsh. How think, how do you get out of a Marcelo Bielsa thinking team with 12 games to go? The only positive for, for Leeds fans is Jesse Marsh would, like the players that they have will suit the way that he wants to play. But he'll have to tweak things. This whole man for man thing, that's gone. Leeds played Brentford on the final day of the season. Yeah. Uh, my money's on that being possibly a, a relegation off. Could be. I know Burnley play Newcastle yeah. as well. In the I, last Newcastle day. definitely I think safe. Newcastle will be all right. And I, I, do, I would definitely have Burnley ahead of uh, Brentford and Leeds on current form. Yeah. Um, may, maybe on paper, if Leeds get their full team back, but they won't have their full team back by the end of the season, it changes things. Yeah. I mean, there's very little talk about Bamford yeah. or Phillips. So you wonder. Are they going to play again this season? That's it. Bamford, I, I don't know. I mean, maybe maybe Jesse Marsh will be a bit more up front. Um, where, but then again, Bielsa's usually he's he's quite honest when when he's asked questions. He would be he'd no problem telling you. But the you wouldn't worry about Everton, no. Not with the quality that they have. I I think anyway, and and I think that they have got a win in the last couple of weeks. I think yeah. just a win for what that does for a relegation threatened team is just like a rocket fuel. And of course, they've had a disappointing result since then. And they looked better against Manchester City, which is definitely something they'll cling to. But Brentford and Leeds just can't get a win at the moment. No. Like They just can't get three points on the board. And that's if, they, if you just get one of them, then away you go. But it's just hard to see how the two of them win games at the moment. So I'd be very worried. I think Everton and Newcastle are just a cut above yeah. that, that crew at the moment. And then it's it's a three-horse race, I think, for that one yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think Burnley are better than the other two. Yeah, I think Norwich are done. Even though Norwich are obviously playing Liverpool tonight in the FA Cup, and Dean Smith has pretty much said like his all eyes are on this weekend, which goes back to what I was saying about certain clubs 
just can't have a proper crack at the, the FA Cup. They don't feel they can because, look, we saw it even last night with Spurs. Spurs put out their, their strong 11, but they couldn't back up the performance from the other day. So that seems to be an issue under Conte where they can't put in decent back-to-back performances. So does that go, to, to, is that to do with the intensity he wants them to play with? What do you think? What, what's, your, what's your theory? Like, is, there is a possibility that it's to do with conditioning for what he wants to do and what his style of play is. But what it really is, is I, I never understand how at this point when the science is so good that conditioning is better for one team than another. Yeah, I don't like. You can be as well conditioned as you want, but if you're playing two games at high intensity in a week, obviously the second game is going to take its toll a bit more. And when he won the league with Chelsea, one thing he had in his favour was he had no European football that season because they'd been so bad the season before with Mourinho and obviously um, Hiddink had had come in as well. Like so, it's uh, yeah it. It, it appears that would be one of the concerns. Also, as well, you factor in that you know Spurs. You, like we've known for for years that nothing surprises you with Spurs anymore. The fact that they could follow up a, a great win over Man City with a defeat at Burnley. But the encouraging thing is they're st- they're creating chances in those games. Yeah. So. Uh, they've what they've six days to recover for that game against Everton on Monday night. Yeah, and, and it's I, not it's not a bad fixture to get right. No, and I I just wondered with Everton. I just I I wouldn't worry about them going down, but I just wondered what it would be like psychologically to drop into the bottom three at this stage of the let's season. Let's see, let's see. Hopefully, so we'll get a chance to see. If, if Burnley like. Burnley need to get a draw or better against Chelsea on Saturday for that to happen I, I can't see that happening Alright we've got to go feel good stuff great to have you back thanks a million uh, OTBAM is brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day for more from Phil check out our lunchtime wrap it'll drop around midday today on our podcast feed with any breaking news um, John Duggan's OTB brief has been there for you since 6.30am with all of this morning's latest news and headlines from the papers if you want your OTB audio fix subscribe to that feed and you'll get it there and highlights as well tomorrow morning as always we're live from half seven we're bringing you the, uh, inside the new season of Drive to Survive there's the hurling power rankings football and much more as well if you've missed anything subscribe to our YouTube channel and once you hit subscribe we'll let you know whenever we're live you can also get it on our podcast feeds we cut it up into different segments for you so you don't have to listen to the whole thing but if you want to listen to the whole thing you can subscribe to the OTB AM feed with Tommy Walsh in the OTB GA stream and you'll find football with Nathan and Phil this morning in OTB football OTB AM with Gillette get into your flow with the new Gillette Labs Razor with exfoliating bar